You've seen those movies where they say, make my day, or I'm your worst nightmare. Well, listen to this one. Rubber baby buggy bumpers. Ha! You didn't know I'm gonna say that, did you? Your move, creep. kidnappings in Mexico City in the last six days. Have you protected a lot of children before, Mr. Creasy? Yeah, I don't know. Bodyguards gotta be close to people. You know, I'm no good at that. Be the silent type. People are gonna appreciate that. 16 years of military experience, extensive counterterrorism work. What happened to your hand? It's a birth defect. No, it's not. No more questions. That's it. Period. You hear me? Peter just wants to be friends. I regret that your profession needs to exist. So do I, Marjorie. He's like a bear. Yeah? Big, sad bear. Good things happen too, Gracie. Yeah? Like what? Like meeting me. <laughs> Gracie, you're smiling. Pita! Pita! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Film Feast podcast. I am your host, Matt Bledsoe, and this is volume 12 of Unscottable, which is our ongoing monthly series on the films of director Tony Scott. Uh, this time, we are talking about Man on Fire from 2004. To help me talk about it, I am very excited to be joined by one of the hosts of the long-running Scream Addicts podcast. Uh, it's Jinx. Jinx, how you doing? 39% on Rotten Tomatoes, which... <laughs> To this day, and if you're, I'm sorry, uh, this is the wrong way to start. Hey, Matthew, how are you today? I'm, uh, 
I just, you know, I came in hot, I guess, uh, just then and didn't mean to, I apologize. I'm just, I'm raring to get into the injustice done to this movie, this masterpiece. And uh, yeah, that's how I'm doing. So, uh, <laughs> so thank you so much for having me on because uh, there will be punches thrown at all the critics that, uh, that has, uh, that have all marred this film with their uh their nonsense 39% how how is it at 39 you know even if you gave me a 50 or 60 i would grumble at that but i would almost almost understand how is this movie at 39% please tell me what do you think i'm as confused as you are it's criminal i uh i i'm glad you started off with that injustice because uh, it's 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 baffling it's i i don't know i mean you know i, I feel like critics I feel like a lot of times violent type action movies they have problems with. And I know, I mean, we'll get into it plenty, I'm sure. But um, this is when Tony Scott really starts ramping up uh, kind of a lot of the excess stuff that, I mean, I love uh, the, the kind of, you know, subtitles flying around when they might not be needed, the, the, all the effects. He's using nine different cameras and crazy editing, um, all stuff I love. But I feel like critics were completely thrown by that stuff. And that's kind of what I saw in the uh, some of the little blurbs I read it from reviews. But uh, yeah, no, it's a little infuriating because uh, I mean, right off the bat, I think we, we both love this movie. So it's it, that's tough to swallow. We see that Rotten Tomatoes rating. I, I you know, I'm not saying I want to murder anybody, <laughs> but I'm not saying I want to fill a charger with C4. And you know what? I'm not that's going too far. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just throwing that please out keep there. Keep me just out of legal gonna, trouble, please. Just, uh, just gonna leave it lie there. You know, no, it's, uh, it's. I'm glad that you mentioned the, uh, the sort of excesses that he, uh, he was sort of indulging in at this point in his career. Was this the first feature film that went what I like to call full Scott? Uh, because I know he was already kind of doing it with, uh, with Beat the Devil. Uh, the uh, the BMW short that he did, which if you've never seen it, is absolutely amazing and probably could stand to have an entire episode devoted to it. Just throwing that out there. Just <laughs> just a suggestion. But, um, you know, I can't think with like Spy Game or even Enemy of the State if he had fully gone into that arena yet but uh but it's been a while since i've seen those movies so please tell me if i'm uh if i'm missing something there no no he was uh i would say ramping up in both those movies enemy of the state and spy game it's some of it's there but i just think it goes to this um this other level starting with man on fire and kind of continues for uh, kind of this little trilogy and i think it kind of calms it down again i would say for taking a poem one two three and um uh, unstoppable but this little uh, this domino deja vu, I think, is like a lot of the <laughs> the radical Tony Scott style that uh, that maybe my favorite stuff in his whole filmography. Like, I mean, it's just all this. He's using like every tool in the toolbox, I would say, like he's just using every trick in the book that he's like ever learned and experimenting with stuff um, when he doesn't really need to. I mean, he's he's been around for a long time at this point um he's about to turn 60 when this comes out like he's an established filmmaker and he still wants to experiment with all these crazy techniques which i love that he did that but there's something about it too there's something that i love about tony scott uh it's funny watching the movie again in advance of this uh this conversation i i found that all of that stuff i mean generally when you have something that draws attention to you know the the artifice of a film, you know, subtitles on screen or lens and film stock changes, uh, uh, overly stylized flourishes, all these things that scream at you. You are watching a movie. 
I don't know about you, it keeps you kind of at an arm's length from the story and from the characters, but there's something with how Scott uses them that, you know, it's not haphazard. Like it, 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 it all only drags you deeper into the film. And I wish, I don't know, I wish I could say why that is, why I feel that way, but I'm never aware of it while I'm watching the movie. It's only after the movie or, you know, uh, uh, only a follow-up viewing that you can really notice some of those things, I think, in an objective way. There's some sort of, I don't know, there's some sort of crazy alchemy at work there, I think. I just think, I, I, I honestly think the man, he was a master stylist, he was a master visualist, and I, I, I think he was one of the very best directors that we had, and I don't think he gets proper credit for that. I mean, generally, when you know, super talented, underrated people pass, they finally get their due. And I, I don't think there are many people out there who would say Scott is a bad director or even really anything less than a very good director, but I'm certain he isn't as highly regarded as he should be. Well, I could not agree more. You're in the right place for that kind of opinion. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's something when you direct kind of blockbuster type movies or action movies where I just feel like you won't get a lot of respect, you know, like especially critically, which you already kind of mentioned, um, they kind of write you off, you know, you're the guy that did Top Gun, which is this big, like, um, <laughs> you know, kind of what just, I don't like to use word shallow, but I'm saying it's just a big, a big blockbuster, very glamorous, um, very stylish. There's, it's weird. It's, it's it, some guys just don't get that next level of respect. Like he's pretty beloved. I mean, um, especially doing this podcast, he found out he's pretty beloved, but there's like a level of uh, artistic credit. I don't think he gets, cause he is a great filmmaker um, and very creative filmmaker who did not like rest on his laurels ever, which is pretty, pretty admirable, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And he, I was glad to see kind of that outpouring of love for him in the last probably, what has it been? About a year and a half, two years. There was, um, I forget what kicked it off exactly, but I just remember for a solid three or four weeks, everyone on Twitter was watching all of his work again. And it was just, uh, I don't know, it was very, it was very nice to see. Uh, I, I was very glad to see that, uh, that people were, you know, finally giving the man his due we're we're still we're still sitting at 39 percent for his masterpiece but uh you know yeah. that's neither here nor there and i you know it's funny i keep throwing around the word masterpiece like uh I, I i want people to know when i say that that i actually genuinely mean it i think this is the man's best film uh and i think it's and uh, I, I i adore quite a lot of his work uh i don't think everything is a home run but uh, I don't think he ever made what I would call a bad movie. Uh, and I think many of his movies are in fact quite good, if not great. Uh, but I think I would hold Man, in, Man on Fire like head and shoulders above even the movie that I would call probably his second best, which for me would probably be True Romance, I think. Yeah, I mean, that one's great. I know that's usually a very popular pick. It's up there for me. Um for sure. Uh, he, yeah, I, I'm not think, a Top Gun guy. I'm going to throw that out there. Uh, listen, don't, <laughs> don't worry. Um, we did Top Gun a long time ago. Um, me and my friend, Chris Hurtado, and uh, neither one of us are big on Top Gun. I felt kind of bad because um, I thought I was going to be alone here. I thought I was going to no, be judged. No, no, no. I think I, it's just, it's not the Tony Scott movie that I necessarily want. And I, it, it may feel bad because I know it's so important to his 
whole career because it launches his whole career. It's, I think, still his biggest hit or one of his biggest hits. Now I'm blanking, but um, very important film. And I don't really like it that much. <laughs> it's, I don't know. I just, I, I like it more. I think I've watched it three times now in my life, maybe four times. And I like it a little more every time I see it, but I, it never, it's never my favorite Tony Scott movie. Like, cause I mean, it's, it's miles away from Man on Fire. They are very, very different movies. So they don't, yeah, they're, they're not in the same ballpark. They're not in the same zip code. They don't share a state <laughs> for me. Um, yeah. And, but, but that's crazy because if you were to write out in hand, all of the titles to those movies and show it to, you know, random moviegoer number seven, um, out of all of them, it's going to be Top Gun. You know, they're going to look at all the titles, they're going to vaguely recognize them, maybe even like a couple, but as soon as they reach the top of the list where it all starts, it's going to be, oh, Top Gun. You know, it's, it's, I, I, yeah, I think that's probably his most iconic film, is it not? And yet, eh, you know, <laughs> I'm going, it's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. I am going to revisit it in advance of the sequel that I'm not wild about. But um, I don't know. There's something about that movie. And yet, you know what? It's funny. I, even though that's arguably very stripped down, at least compared to Men on Fire, it's funny you were talking about that little style trilogy that he's done. And Domino is kind of the centerpiece of that. I would say that Domino in many ways, even though it's more entertaining than Top Gun, is every bit as vapid. Um, <laughs> which, uh, although I have had friends make very convincing cases to me that that movie is a brilliant satire of what a biopic should be. And with that sort of stance, I kind of want to revisit the movie. It's been a while, but um, I, I've never been a huge fan of Domino either, especially coming off of Man on Fire. I think that's, Maybe Domino's biggest sin for me is the fact that it immediately followed up Man on Fire. That's understandable. You are talking to a big Domino fan, though. I'm a, I'm a Domino guy, and I have been. I saw in the theater when it came out, and that was the brief time that I was at film school, and I was like, I want to make cool shit like this. <laughs> and Man on Fire, that was like the one-two punch of Man on Fire and Domino like really cemented me as a Tony Scott fan. And they're probably yeah. his two most extreme style stylized movies you know it's like i took yeah. a big swing what i thought was a big swing with top gun and then i thought it was a little more safe at taking a pot shot at domino and that was my mistake and so uh i'm sorry i did not mean to besmirch one of your favorite it's episodes. okay i would just say rewatch it and yet the satire part is good i also think it's a, a really kind of interesting time capsule of the early to mid 2000s and how like shitty a place we were with pop culture because there's a lot of stuff about like <laughs> reality TV shows and um, things like that in there that I think uh, they were very knowingly poking fun at. I think it was too in the moment people to kind of get it then. But looking back, they're like, oh, this, yeah, that, that was like a wasteland of pop culture, the early to mid 2000s. Like it's not a great, <laughs> it's not a great artistic time. There was like, you know, we were really deep into the reality TV show phase and everything was just very like surface level and, um, kind of stupid for lack of a better word like um i mean i i so yeah i kind of love that movie for a lot of reasons but um uh to go back a couple things you said so i think you said there's a tony scott kind of um hiccup in popularity i think that was kind of a one-two punch if i remember this right that tarantino went on to the ringer podcast the rewatchables i think it's that that the network and they're very popular and he talked about um unstoppable uh, unstoppable which yeah. <laughs> Which is a movie that I already really liked, but then listening to Tarantino talk about it, 
which Tarantino has that that sort of magic to him anyway, right? Like he 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 talks about a movie, and if he loves it, it's sort of infectious. And uh, I, I think he made me love Unstoppable a good deal more than I already did, and I haven't even revisited the movie since. So. <laughs> He did the same for me. I it's I, they get people give him a lot of shit, but he can talk about some movies and make everything sound better than it is or great or interesting or something. You know, he always like he sold me on so many movies that I've never heard of. And I'm like, I got to see this now. <laughs> and Unstoppable, I had seen and kind of wrote off like maybe right when it came out or something. And I was like, that was good, but it wasn't, you know, mind blowing or spectacular. And then he talked about it and I was like, oh, wow. OK, that's pretty great. And then. Uh, the other thing that happened, that podcast screen drafts did a Tony Scott draft, um, I think around uh. the same time. And I think with those two things together, it was just something in the air. And then it was funny because my friend, Mark Warner, like kind of came up with this idea for um, the like a Tony Scott podcast. And I think we kind of talked about it. And I was already, was there, I must have been doing this podcast already. And he was, he was like, well, I'm not going to do it. You just do it. <laughs> So he kind of gave me the it's the idea and the inspiration. So um, I know he was a uh, a Tony Scott guy way before it was like invoke. So um, and I I was too. I just I don't think I delved that deep into his whole filmography. I think I'd seen almost everything when I started that. But I mean, I was so um, so I mean I, I danced around a lot in this podcast. But Man on Fire is my favorite Tony Scott movie. I think for episodes I tried to play it off like I'll reveal it when I get there, but I couldn't hide it after. A while. And nice. uh, I was like, it's my favorite. And I think it is his masterpiece, 100%, because I think Man on Fire combines like everything I love about him into one movie, because I think you get the uh, kind of dark side of him, which is like in on in Revenge and Last Boy Scout, um, and even True Romance a little bit. Uh, but that really, he's empathetic too to his characters, and he has this soft side, and he got a little more sensitive in his older age, I think, too. But the whole Denzel... Dakota Fanning relationship is so emotional um, and you get his style just getting turned up to like 11, um, which I'm such a huge fan of because I think it's so distinct um, and so just creative and fascinating. And I, when I saw Man on Fire in a theater, I was like 17 and I was like, I haven't seen anything like this movie. Like I've seen so many revenge movies, but I have not seen something that looked or felt quite like this movie, which, um, yeah, and it's been a favorite for a long time. It's definitely my favorite of his, and yeah, I I, I agree. I think it's his masterpiece. I love it. So we can start. We can start there. <laughs> so. Excellent. I'm glad. Okay, so we are in agreement there. I, yeah. I lost you with Domino, but I'm I'm glad we're back. A man on fire reeled me so. back in yeah <laughs> so <laughs> and i think no i that's you know uh to be fair we i i, I feel like you and i are pretty much on board with uh unstoppable too so uh yeah <laughs> how how have i not revisited that since that tarantino episode it's oh, i don't know i had to watch it like the day the next day or something like as soon as i heard the <laughs> podcast i went to go fi- like, find it and watch it again and you um, know what bless tarantino too for actually you know talking up chris pine and you know i and basically pointing out how marvelous an actor he is and one of the best actors of his generation. I don't think Pine gets enough credit for how damn good he is. And uh, I just, I hope Tarantino works with him before, uh, before his career is over. Yeah. I mean, Tarantino's not. Yeah. Oh no, no. I think Tarantino has one more movie in him is what he keeps saying. So um, he's got to get him in there at some point, but you know, what's crazy though. Can I ask you a question? And this is going to be a weird digression and I apologize. You can totally (laughs) cut this out if you want, but I, I, this is how my mind works, but I have to ask you while we're chatting about it, Tarantino, Chris Pine, 
obviously he's a fan said he wants to work with him you know but whether or not that perfect role will come up who knows right Mm -hmm. do you think there is any chance like obviously if you're making a massive studio movie you're going to want the biggest stars sure and i love dicaprio and i love pitt and once upon a time in hollywood but do you think (laughs) that there is any chance that he wrote Rick Dalton with Chris Pine in mind, because I swear, if you watch that movie, it feels at times like DiCaprio is almost playing Chris Pine, playing Rick Dalton. I could see that. I was just thinking, I think Chris Pine would have fit in really well (laughs) into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, And that's not me knocking DiCaprio. I think DiCaprio is brilliant then. I'm just saying like, there is a cadence to his delivery that like, you know, when I watched the after, and it was honestly after that episode, I was watching it and I was like, I feel like this was Chris Pine's role. And Sony was like, we're going to need somebody bigger than Captain Kirk, uh, which is unfair <laughs> and bullshit, but, but still. So anyway, weird digression, probably going to happen. Apologies. That's, that's fine. This happens a lot on the show. We do. We go on a lot of sides, the stories, tangents. It's encouraged. At, the, at first I was like, Oh, I don't know what the tangent. Everyone's like, I love tangents. Just let it happen. So, <laughs> no problem. Um, it might be the curse of um, Chris Pine is just too handsome and people don't take him seriously. <laughs> that, uh, you know, the curse of the handsome leading man. It's just, you know, no respect, I guess. <laughs> like, That's uh, what a what a horrible burden to bear. What a burden to bear. Or that handsome son of a bitch. To be that handsome. I know. It's like when people you look at as a guy and he's like, he's so handsome, you're angry. You're like, God damn it. How are you? How is this possible? <laughs> Can you imagine living in the 80s? At the same time as somebody like Don Johnson in his prime, would you just walk around pissed all the time? <laughs> just all the time angry. I'm trying to remember who I just talked about this podcast recently, where it was like a guy who was just like someone who's so handsome you're mad at. Oh, I was, it, I think it was George Clooney from Dust Till Dawn. Oh, and that you're like, son of a bitch. Damn it. This guy's too cool. And <laughs> hey, it's not fair. It's like, yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe that's, I don't, Chris Pine, I think is kind of morphing though into like a, um, not a character actor, but uh, I don't know, more a serious actor, or I don't know. I I feel like he's kind of aging into like this this new phase of his career where people will probably take him more seriously. I think, but uh, he is good. He's really good. So, um, and I'm glad Tarantino pointed that out too. And Tarantino also was a guy who who always backed up Tony Scott. Um, like always said good things about Tony Scott. They worked together. Obviously, True Romance. Tarantino helped punch up the Crimson Tide script. Um. Tarantino always a Tony Scott guy. So again, another plus for him, my book. So <laughs> yeah, I wish, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think in some marvelous universe, there's, uh, there's a version of the taking of Pelham one, two, three, where Tarantino sort of came in and, and punched it up a little bit. Not that I think that the script is Pelham's, you know, major issues. I, I just, can we talk about Pelham for a moment? I know this is the man <laughs> on fire, but it's Denzel, it's Tony Scott. Yeah, it's, yeah. I think, you know, a friend of mine, uh, he, he said this, we, uh, I used to work in a movie theater actually at around the time that Man on Fire came out. I can't tell you how many after hours viewings of this movie that I did on 35 millimeter, watching it over and over and over again with friends. I would find out that somebody hadn't seen it yet. And I'm like, all right, 12.30 tonight after we're closed, all the people are out. You're coming in and we're watching one of the best movies you've ever seen. Um, and I, weirdly enough, I did the same thing for the Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. I didn't pitch it as one of the best movies <clears throat> they'd ever seen. Because <laughs> uh, I hadn't seen it yet. I only watched that one once. But um, 
after we walked out, we talked about it and we tried to sort of pick apart what exactly are issues with awareness. Like, is it script? No, no. And obviously the source material is great. Direction? No, no. Tony Scott's direction was on point. Denzel? Come on. Denzel's great. Um, well, what the hell is the problem with that movie? And my friend looked at me and he was like, you know what? And look, I love John Travolta. I do. I do love John Travolta. <laughs> I knew this was coming. Go ahead. <laughs> but my friend looked at me and he was like, look, if you take the exact movie, this movie that we just watched, and you replace John Travolta trying to be a badass with Mickey Rourke, oh. it immediately becomes a fantastic film. And I was like, I can't argue with that. <laughs> I can't. There's something about perfect casting. And you know what? To bring it back to Man on Fire, Mickey Rourke is in this movie. He's right. in Man on Fire and he's amazing in it, even though he's only in it for five minutes, but he's so marvelously slimy. I think this is probably the last role he ever did before he went the full on grizzled tough guy route. Am I wrong about that? I'm trying to remember because it, it's funny because when I was reading about this movie again, I was kind of reminded of where Mickey Rourke was at the time. Like he was not getting a lot of parts. He was in Once Upon a Night in Mexico like a year before this. Um, and I remember thinking like, holy shit, where has Mickey Rourke been? And why does he look like this? And I felt bad, but he, he went to go box. He went to go do boxing for like years and got the shit beat out of him and had to have like facial reconstructive surgery. And he came back to like, get, try to get parts and he couldn't get the same roles anymore. So he wasn't doing much of anything, but then people started giving him this little supporting type roles. He got one time Mexico and he kind of plays a similar character, I feel like, but, um, and then he's in this as this like slimy lawyer who, yeah, doesn't have a lot of screen time, but like makes the most of like every second he's on screen, I would say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are no, there is no role in this film that I don't think that isn't perfectly cast. I mean, every, everyone is just so spot on amazing. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, Man on Fire was early 2004, you know, a year later, Mickey Rourke is, you know, he's slipping in the Marv's coat for Sin City. So I think at that point he was just, uh, yeah, yeah. He was, he was Mickey Rourke, you know, colon tough guy, but, um, <laughs> which is fine. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm fine with that version of him, but, uh, you know, seeing him watching this movie after all of that, you know, that sort of phase of his career, uh, seeing him in a suit with like the slick back hair and just being, you know, this, uh, this prick lawyer is just, uh, you know, it, it makes me kind of miss 80s Mickey Rourke, even just that much more. Understandable. It's going to be, this is a weird opinion, but I feel like maybe because I'm more, I've seen more of his 2000s work. I feel like I like like tough guy post-boxing career Mickey Rourke than like young, <laughs> handsome Mickey Rourke. I don't know. I find him very interesting as this character actor who does all these like weird things and deep I mean, down, you want yeah. Chris Pine to go off and box for about a decade, don't you? <laughs> That's where we're going with this. <laughs> we're going to ruin that handsome face of yours, Chris. I don't know why you have like a Boston accent. Oh, that was. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I want. No, I I don't know. I mean, I, I love, uh, I saw Angel Hearts. He's great in that. That's a wild movie. Uh, it's like, but um, yeah, I love him as like this weirdo, like supporting guy. But then, of course, he's in The Wrestler a few years later and he gets, does he win the Oscar or an Oscar nomination? I don't, I don't think he got the Oscar, but uh, I know it was a big deal when he was in The Wrestler and he got all this, this praise for his role and like, um, yeah, I always find him interesting. I think he's a very interesting actor. I will always say that about Mickey Rourke, I think. So no matter how little time he's on screen, he's usually fascinating. Agreed, agreed. And definitely the same is true in this movie, Man on Fire, which is, as we noted, a masterpiece. 
that sits at 39% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> if if there is no other movie that should undercut whatever importance Rotten Tomatoes has, should it not be Man on Fire and it's 39%, I still cannot get over that. Can we like hack the website and change that rating? <laughs> is that possible? Something needs to change. I don't know how you get there. Maybe we'll have Elon Musk buy Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, dear and, God. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I don't know uh, how we're going to wrap up this show, but when we get to the point where, you know, we possibly talk about where uh, folks can find us at online, I don't think I'm going to be able to throw my Twitter handle out there anymore. I, I don't think I'm long for Twitter, sir. But um, Oh, no. See, I, I hope... See, my my idea for the Twitter, and everyone's very worried about what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen, but I would rather stay and kind of try to hold down the fort and still keep it positive. And because I feel like I'm in a good circle, like of people, and I've met so many people through Twitter I would never have met otherwise. And I'm like, we can't we can't just give it up. I feel like we got to all sit together and just uh, try to keep it positive. Is my is my thinking. But you know, if someone wants to leave, I can't blame them. But but I'm just like we got to. It's like hold the line, basically. <laughs> 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 you shall not pass um i just i can't leave i've met too many good people on twitter but uh um you brought up casting really quick because i i have this has been a running theme on this podcast is how well cast most tony scott movies are um and i feel bad because i don't think i've ever given any credit to a casting director and tony scott's obviously involved in the process but uh the woman who did the casting for man on fire which i, I think is a like pretty much perfectly cast movie from top to bottom like even the smallest roles great a woman named bonnie timmerman who's like seems like a legendary casting director and she helped on spy game beverly hills cop 2 specifically with tony scott and she also did these movies listen to this list uh bull durham glenn gary glenn ross carlito's way heat the insider and black hawk down and that's like barely any of them. there's still more but i couldn't read them all but there's she's she's done all these amazing ensemble movies and um uh she nailed on this one too i thought she she was the one that said take a chance on Mark Anthony and Mickey Rourke because I don't think anyone else would have picked them out of a, a lineup, but she was like, those two guys could be good in those roles. Uh, and she nailed it. I, you know, it's funny. We've been talking about Rotten Tomatoes to, uh, to talk about another institution, which is no longer relevant. <laughs> the Oscars, where is the category uh, that they surely would have cut for the main presentation? <laughs> but where is the category for casting director for doing their job so damned well? I mean, my goodness, all of the movies that you just mentioned, uh, to say nothing of the movie that we're, you know, we're talking about right now. You're absolutely right. There is there there are no false beats in this movie from any single performance everyone is perfectly every character is perfectly inhabited and you know yeah you're right i mean tony scott you know his direction plays a hand in that obviously the actors and their performances play a hand in that but i i, I think yeah you're right it's no small feat for a casting director to nail every single part the way that she surely must have so yeah let's let's stop our hats to her she, yeah i was looking at her resume is like this woman has an incredible and there's way more than i'd even list there but i thought that was enough to get the idea but uh it was in the book and i was like my god this lady's a wizard of casting so um yeah i just it, there's even there's even some actors who i don't recognize from anything else i believe in some of the uh so like the mexican actors um oh god let me pull their names so i wasn't ready for this point but uh, the uh i'm thinking mostly of the female reporter and the, the is older... it rachel ticketon maybe did i get i think is it yes. Ticotin? I, I uh, boy, my Spanish. She was in, um, <laughs> uh, was it Total Recall, I think? Oh, my God. 
wow yeah she was melita until the recall how have i never put that together till right now? yeah i had Holy the biggest crap. crush on her when i when i was like 10 years old uh i was like forget sharon stone like she was just stunningly beautiful and uh yeah so when she popped up on men on fire i was like wait a second is that is that who i is that was that my childhood crush <laughs> yeah she uh wow I, i'm stunned right now because i didn't know that <laughs> so um and i've seen total recall many times we did a whole podcast total recall and i didn't even put this together <laughs> good god um you know sometimes you're just not all with it but yeah so everybody is just great but i mean obviously i feel like we have to single out denzel washington and dakota fanning because without the two of them i don't think the movie works anywhere near as well if it's not those two people, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just can't imagine anybody else with the two of them in these roles. I can't think of, you know, maybe, you know, Kirsten Dunst in Interview with a Vampire, you know, maybe uh, Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense. Maybe they get close to what Dakota Fanning does in this movie, but I can't think of another child performance that tops what she does in this film. Like her performance is astonishing. Uh, it, it, just on its own, forgetting the fact that she was so damned young, you know, and that she was a child at the time, but what it, the performance she gives, where the hell is her Oscar? You know, I, I <laughs> right, just, yeah. she is stunning in this film. And uh, I mean, she's its she's its beating heart you know i mean we only really get to know her over the course of what like well i say only i mean i think it's 50 minutes you know uh to the point of the kidnapping but then she vanishes from the film so you know i and yet it, it's her kind of spirit and her soul that permeates the movie uh even more so than creasy even more so than denzel washington i think and um God, there are those haunting little cutaways of her, mm. you know, as he is sort of mowing his way through the underground and uh, La Hermandad. And you just, I, there's this one sequence where uh, it's the uh, the guy that he is, uh, you know, tortured in the car. And as he sends it off of the cliff and it's still hanging midair, there's just this quick shot of her turning into the camera. And it's not even perfectly framed. I think it's like from her nose down you know, but it's just so brief and it just, it serves to remind you of why he's doing what he's doing. And uh, again, like if we're not for her performance, then I think, and this is taking nothing away from Denzel, who's absolutely superb. And I'd be happy to talk about him at length here in just a moment. But <laughs> if she wasn't as good as she was, and she isn't merely good, she is fucking fantastic in this film. But if she wasn't that fantastic, then I don't think any of the stuff that follows her exit from the movie would have nearly as much weight. We wouldn't care as much, I don't think. Right, yeah, that it, that's a great point. Yeah, I think she's so pivotal because you've got to believe somebody would like, you know, want to cut through, just kill all these people <laughs> to find her again. And I'm on board. I'm like, we, you know, whatever you got to do, Creasy, you got to find her like, and you. I think even, I saw my mom in a theater. And, well, she was horrified some of the violence, but I think even she was like, she was like, listen, they took that cute little girl. You got to kill her. <laughs> you know, she was on, you're on board with the revenge because you don't want anything to happen to Coda Fanning. Like, come on. Like, that's just, you know, that would just be terrible. So, and, yeah. and, and the, the yeah. fact that he's like so obviously like 
you know, at a certain point in the movie there, everyone is convinced that she's, she's dead. And if she died, like she probably died a horrible death. And the fact that that fuels him, but you know, what's funny. I I was just talking to a friend of mine about this earlier today. I revisited the movie last night. We were chatting about it today. Uh, We both love it. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, we've sort of lamented the fact uh, that before John Bernthal, there wasn't really an accurate Punisher on screen. You know, like, uh, I, I think the Dolph Lundgren movie is fun. I think Thomas Jane is a great actor who's in a not great movie uh, that still has some fun stuff in it. Uh, Punisher Warzone is just, you know, hey, look, Insane. if you got enough, <laughs> yes, if you got enough alcohol around, you know, have a blast, order a pizza, it's a good time. But, uh, you know, for the longest time, he and I said, like, you know, the best Punisher on screen is is Denzel Washington, is John Creasy in Man on Fire. And for the longest time, I held to that. And then it was on this specific revisit that I realized that I was not only wrong about that, but completely and utterly, absolutely on a different pole wrong. Because when you think of the Punisher, he is a guy that's obviously, like, full of rage. But when he is killing... Like when when he is mowing through, you know, whatever criminal underworld or, you know, whoever the hell he's killing at the time, uh, he's he's still just full of rage. He's a guy who will just never stop raging. Right. And I'm reminded watching Man on Fire of the moment with that Rayburn, like Christopher Walken and talk about great performances uh, in this movie, like Walken. Walken fires on a couple of cylinders that he he rarely has in his career in this mm-hmm. movie. And I'm not knocking Walken. I think he's a brilliant actor, but I, I love him in this movie because he shows us a different side of that, uh, you know, himself as a performer. But there's that, <laughs> there's that scene. It's in every trailer. Everyone quotes it. And it's, it, it, on the surface, it feels like a fun sort of setup for a badass line that tells us, how scary Denzel Washington is going to be for all of the villains in the movie, right? And it's that scene where Walken is talking about how a man can be an artist at anything, right? You know, food or this or that, you know? And uh, Creasy's artist death, he's about to paint his masterpiece, right? And it's like, yeah, that's a that's a fun line. That's a badass Probably line. Probably the coolest line right? in the movie for me. And it's like, it, it's a, exactly. And a great trailer line. It's, and, and it works. Oh, totally. that, that, line could, that line could fall very flat if like, I don't know if it was a different actor, but Walken, he delivers it. I, I thought this was a time that Walken was doing a lot of stuff where it was kind of, I feel like some of these actors get older and they start doing like kind of funnier movies or making fun of their own persona a little bit. And I remember thinking when this came out, even I was like, oh, this is more of like a good dramatic turn from Walken again. He's not doing, he's not being silly. Like he's really, he's really like, he brought it for this one, basically. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And you're right. And it is, I mean, it's a great trailer line. It's a great sort of moment, but Watching it again, it occurred to me, and it, it was this great sort of revelation that I had that Creasy isn't remotely Frank Castle. He isn't remotely the Punisher. He isn't remotely this guy who is just constantly angry and just raging his way through. He is that artist who is painting his masterpiece. He's a guy who, when we first meet him, he's hollow. Right. He's trying to contend mm-hmm. with the fact that he's done really horrible shit in his life. And I would love to talk about that a little bit uh, in a minute. But, you know, he's a guy who is suicidal, you know, who no longer wants a place in the world. And then he meets Peta, and then she sort of brings him to life. And he's in a quiet way. You know, he's he's kind of, you know, 
a little bit funny and he's charming and yeah when he's like coaching her he he's doing that gruff thing but you know he's he's doing the stern coach thing but he's also you know he's he's warming up and he's being kind of like a father figure to her that she doesn't actually have in her own life right but then when he finds out that she has died which you know i mean he thinks that she's died mm-hmm. Obviously, like we we feel the weight of that along with him, and things get grim. And he's obviously he he kind of actually more than angry. It, he walks around the movie like a ghost for about five or ten minutes. He just sort of passes through the film, and then there's that great sequence where uh, he and Rada Mitchell, whose name uh, fuck I'm forgetting at the moment in the movie. Um, uh, but I'll they, look it up while you're talking. Because I thank you. But they have that uh, they have that scene in Peter's bedroom and he finds her journal and she has that great sequence where she sits down with the bear and she finally just asks, uh, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to find them. I'm going to kill them. You know, anybody who had anything to do with it, who ever profited from it, anybody who opens their eyes at me, I'm going to kill them all. Right. From that point on. He's not the Punisher. He's not somebody who's raging he's having a ball (laughs) he has a complete and utter blast with what he's doing he's sitting in a car chatting the guy up he's laughing and then he cuts his fingers off and he cauterizes him and then he he you know he sends him off to the next world right uh you know when he goes into the nightclub he's kind of fucking with the guy you know a bit uh he he executes one of their friends in front of them and he just seems borderline giddy about it when he straps the guy to the back of the car and sticks the bomb up his ass he's happy like he is now there is i'm not saying it undercuts what he's feeling about PETA. like there is obviously that that sort of underlying rage that's obviously driving everything, but the violence itself is making him happy. You know, when he's standing over the guy going, don't move, don't move, don't move. <laughs> you know, when he's, he pulls off the, uh, the masking tape and he's whipping him in the face with it, grinning ear to ear. This is a guy who is in his element and he has come back to life. And it's just, I, I that had never occurred to me watching the movie before because you know all your focus are all i was focused on as a viewer was all the violence that he was sort of uh <laughs> you know committing against all these horrible people and you're just kind of like you know on a certain level like you know right on you know and the brutality of the violence is just so damn grim but watching his performance he is a guy who is loving what he's doing and again i think it goes back to that artist line you know he's he's painting and he's painting with a smile on his face the entire time until the end. That's yeah, that's so interesting because I I don't think I thought of that. I I thought he just seemed like laser focused on what he was doing. Like th- it's almost like when he goes into that mode of like I'm gonna kill them all. It's like that's almost like I mean I, I feel bad because he's <laughs> it seems like that's what he's like meant to do because he's had it, whatever his shady backstory is. He's done all this probably like military stuff, black ops stuff, all kinds of stuff that. Um, probably terrible things. And I feel like when he's in that mode, it's like he has direction and he's pointed and he just knows to like, just go. And he's just gonna like, he's on a, he's on like a path and you can't stop him is all how I thought of it. And it does, it's funny you brought this up because I had never thought of it like this. And the, the book I'm reading by Tony Scott, the author who agrees with both of us, the author of the book thinks this is a masterpiece. So he's a good guy, Larry Taylor. Um, he points out about how the interrogations really ramp up because at first, 
the first interrogation takes place inside the car. It's very cramped and sweaty and feels desperate. Um, the second one's in the nightclub. Um, and he says, Creasy here is vengeance personified. Um, he burns the, the club to the ground. It gets a little more intense. In the third confrontation, um, he basically, he it loses all semblance of a covert operation. He's now just, you know, uh, it's in broad daylight. He blows up a car in a city street. He takes the guy under the thing and blows him up. It's like it's like the, the interrogation ramping up to the point where Creasy just kind of stops caring about being covert at a certain point. He's just like, you know, on his warpath, basically. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and it's weird to say that you have a lot of fun watching that sort of stuff. Like, but it is, you know, it's grim and it's awful, but at the same time, like there is a, uh, they're just such bad people that he's going after and you, you're hurting alongside him because we love that character that you can't help, but, uh, but sort of cheer him on as he's yeah. doing all of those yeah. horrible this, things. <laughs> I was going to ask you this question again, the show it was kind of a very broad question about how do you feel about revenge films in general? Like, are you a big fan of revenge movies? Are you kind of like, eh, are you, um, or is it kind of your genre? Do you like revenge movies? <laughs> no, I, I do. I, I love revenge movies. It's funny because I'm a guy who doesn't really believe in capital punishment. And yet I find revenge movies like wonderfully cathartic. You know, we were talking about Tarantino <laughs> And his recommendations earlier, I mean, Rolling Thunder is one of my favorite movies. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned revenge movies, too. Uh, a friend of mine re reminded me of this on Twitter not that long ago, that um, when this movie came out, it was sort of sandwiched, I think, in between uh, Kill Bill Volume 2 and the Thomas Jane Punisher. You know, yeah, the Jonathan Hensley Punisher. So yeah. there was, And it all came out within the same, like, two months. It was like the spring of revenge, you know? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I will admit that I, I am a sucker for revenge movies. The crow is pretty much my favorite oh, yeah. film. So, yeah. um, but yeah, I, so yeah, I am, I feel no sort of moral qualms about watching revenge <laughs> movies. They're, they're entertainment, they're art, you know, enjoy them for what they are They're They can be very cathartic. Do I, in real life, would I, uh, condone, you know, what, uh, some of the stuff that happens, you know, maybe I, if it's a matter of like saving a child's life, then yeah, you, you kill whoever the hell you have to. Like if they're, if they put themselves in that position, sure. What he's doing, maybe it's, it's morally a little dodgier, but do I feel bad for any of those guys as they get mowed down by him? Like, nah, nah, not really. <laughs> not, not at all. Yeah. I mean, they're basically all like child traffickers also. I mean, it's like, you know, one of the worst they're, they're involved in everything. Terrible murder, selling drugs, trafficking children, kidnapping children. Like, um it's like everything you know and and I'm, I'm glad you kind of said it basically how I feel about revenge movies because I don't think my movie how do I put this my real life like thought process not the same when I watch a movie because in the movie I always say this to you, you have like the usually you have like the god's eye perspective where you know every bit of information you know like it's much easier in a movie to say like oh you need to kill this guy because we know he's a terrible person we know what he's going to do next that type of thing in real life, you can't, it can't be that black and white, you know, most of the time it can't, it can't be that black and white for you. People need to go through the process and all this stuff, but I'm a big fan of like the Punisher. I was like a crazy person. I'm, I'm like, Oh yeah, I love a good revenge movie. <laughs> and I, and I kind of, I kind of even don't like the thing when people are like, well, you know, if you, um, what's the saying, if you go for revenge, you better dig two graves. I'm like, 
fuck that. It's like, well, you know, it's like, you not, if, just, uh, yeah. not if you do your job well if enough. You do it well. Yeah. You don't need to grave. So yeah, <laughs> I just, when they always try to paint revenge as like a, like a bad, like a kind of a fool's errand almost. I'm like, not if you do it right. <laughs> or, you know, I don't know. I'm a big like fan of a revenge movie, but it does not, uh, reflect, uh, how I feel about the real world. Cause they're different things. A movie in the real world are not, they're separate realities. And people sometimes I think blur that, but, um, I love Revenge movie, which is probably another reason I love Man on Fire because, you know, it's, I mean, and they, they do such a good job. I can't even say that. set up like almost an hour of getting to know, uh, you know, Denzel Washington and um, Dakota Fanning's characters and them coming together and bonding this like father-daughter relationship, um, which I think is a big part of why the movie works too, because they give you, Tony gives you so much time to be with the characters before the the terrible incident happens, you know, it's like, that's I think that goes kind of underrated for this movie about how long it takes to set it up. And I appreciate that, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's why the movie, even being nearly two and a half hours long, it never feels like it sort of wears out its welcome, you know? Yeah, it's got very distinct, uh, you know, parts happening, I feel like. So um, because I'm very invested in the first hour when even nothing crazy is happening and people give this movie shit for like how busy and crazy the editing is but the first hour is fairly chill i would say <laughs> it's good you know for like how the the crazy kind of stuff with the camera and editing kind of starts more when the kidnapping starts and i remember tony scott said something about like that was his idea was to kind of show um denzel's like his character creasy's fractured psyche you know that was his way of kind of showing that through film techniques was doing all this crazy stuff. And, um, you know, when that kind of stuff goes crazy in the second half, it all kind of ramps up the style. So it's all kind of for a purpose, I would say, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it seems you're right. I mean, all the crazy, you know, stylistic flourishes, they follow the temperature of the film, you know? And right. uh, yeah, I just, I adore it for that. Uh, and for so many reasons, uh, not the least of which, uh, we mentioned it a moment ago, but I'm curious if you would want to talk about it. Uh, Creasy himself and where we meet him, you know, at the beginning of this movie, he has that great line where, uh, you know, obviously this is a guy who is considering suicide the very moment that we meet him, I think, you know, mm -hmm. it, it feels like he has been on his last tour. You know, he, he's not looking to be saved. I think when he approaches his friend uh, Rayburn, you know, again, great Christopher Walken, I think he knows he's going to be gone soon and he just wanted to see his friend again but there, there is that great moment where they sit down with one another and they dispense with like the pleasantries or at least creasy does almost immediately you know there there is that pool party they're looking around and then it, it's almost like he was dying to ask him he was just racing to ask him that one question which is uh i'm getting it correct uh correct me if i'm wrong about this but it's something like uh do you think god will forgive us for what we've done mm. and it's like he the whole point of his visit was just to be able to ask that question and he couldn't wait to ask it you know he just springs him on it, it on him as quickly as possible and i love that rayburn's response he doesn't miss a beat he's just like no you know, just very simple, very matter-of-factly. And so it's funny. Uh, I don't know if you remember the movie. It was, uh, it just came out about, was it a year ago? Half a year ago, something like that. But uh, 
is the Fede Alvarez sequel, uh, Don't Breathe 2. Are you familiar with it? I just watched that, I think, a few months ago. Yeah. Okay. It was a trip, that movie. <laughs> it was not... Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it might as well be called, you know, Blind Man on Fire. But, <laughs> you know, it, it uh, on my own podcast, we were talking about that movie. And it's it sort of as, uh, you know, as they will, you know, things get kicked up on Twitter and people get angry you know, the discourse for the day and surrounding that one, I remember people being furious at the fact that essentially a, a character who was a rapist and a murderer in the first film was now going to be positioned as a hero in the second. And I get that. I get the knee jerk reaction of that. But if you actually watch the movie and realize it is kind of like, I don't know if it necessarily puts him on a redemption arc, but it just puts him in a situation where he's a bad man, but he's given the opportunity to do something good, you know? And so that that's great trauma. You know, that's great conflict there. That's that's a story that I think is worth watching, you know, uh, as a result. Uh, it's entertaining, at least. And um, I, I, I remember sort of defending the movie uh, to not against my co-hosts, who I think were both sort of ambivalent on the film. But uh, I, I, I remember just asking, I, I drew a parallel to Man on Fire. And I remember saying... You know that scene early in the movie when Denzel asks, do you think God will ever forgive us for what we've done? What do you think most audiences make of that moment? What do they think that that means? Do they think that that means that he's just been going around killing bad guys his entire career and he feels kind of bad about it? Or does that mean that he's done some really deep, dark, awful shit in his life? Stuff that makes a guy like him want to kill himself, you know, and what could that mean? And, uh, you know, one of my co-hosts had a very good point, which is just that, well, the answer is, is that nobody really thinks about, it. you know, <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, he, he's Denzel and he's our hero and that's that. And what I think is fascinating about that character is just we're left to wonder what brought him to the point that we meet him at in the beginning of this movie, because I don't think he was just a guy who was killing bad guys his entire career. I think he's a guy who probably would have been a villain in somebody else's movie, you know? So, I, and I don't know, I'd be very curious to see what you think about that, but I, I, but I think that makes him more fascinating in that way. It makes him more interesting and it makes, uh, it makes his entire journey in this film and especially where it ultimately winds up all the more satisfying. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's interesting. Cause I feel that I didn't thought of that deeply about that line. I mean, I just thought he'd done bad things, but I think because it's, Denzel Washington, who I always think of as a a good guy. You know what I mean? It's like that's almost shorthand for like he's a good I mean, train day, he's like awful. But you know, I mean, most of the time I feel like he plays a we all like Denzel, you know, for the most part. And it's like it's uh, to me, I would think of it as like he's done a lot of bad things, but I think in my mind I had thought they were to bad people, like what he was doing in this movie. And even if you're doing it to bad people, you know, it would still fuck you up, I would think. He's going around I mean, this movie's cutting people's fingers off. He's like torturing people at certain points. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that the little thing you said about like he's probably the bad guy to somebody else. And I was thinking there's one point where he kind of near the end where he goes into uh, a house and there's a bunch of kids in there and he kind of he doesn't do anything to hurt them and he shoes them out. But they probably are thinking, who is this guy who busted our house and is like threatening our parents? You know what I mean? Like in their mind, they're thinking this crazy man busted. <laughs> like, he's, he's the damn boogeyman. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the thing of like, you're the hero in your own story, but I mean, they could, you would never do this, but there's some side story where one of those kids grows up and like, is like, oh, that man, like, I think at that point he burst, he burst into like the brother's house and he blows his 
handoff with a shotgun. <laughs> and the kids are probably like, that's the guy who busted my house when I was a kid and blew my dad's hand off and, um, you know, threatened us and all this stuff. And in our, but in our mind, he's the hero because he's trying to get Dakota Fanning back. You know, it's kind of the thing about like, you're the hero in your own story, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I can, I can see that. I mean, maybe his past isn't that, uh, you know, isn't that dark, but I just, I don't know. I, to, to meet the guy as we do at the very beginning of this movie, it seems like something has hollowed him out, you yeah. know, something, something yeah. killed his soul. And I think it has to be something more than him killing guys on par with like, you know, human traffickers or kidnappers or whatever. Right. Like he, I, there, there is at least one incident in that man's past where he did something that broke him. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I'm glad you brought it up because it's very fascinating. I'm really thinking about it and I'm like, I you think you're onto something. Um, could be a combination of good and bad things he's done. I mean, I love that it's open-ended. We don't know exactly. He doesn't ever tell us a story about, you know, like I burned down a village or I accidentally shot a kid or, you know, he never tells some dark thing that really broke him. Um, I believe, oh, do they say it or is it implied that his, he had a wife that died? That's, yeah i mean they okay. never you're right they never fully delve into that there there's the only real glimpses we get of his backstory are with those conversations with rayburn you know and the stories mm -hmm. that rayburn tells about him later like that's really the only connection that we have have to Creasy's past so um but yeah I, but i love that i don't need you know there are some movies that you know i don't want to I don't know why I'm thinking about this. Maybe it was because it was on HBO Max recently. And I do quite like the movie, but I'm thinking of something like Walk Amongst the Tombstones where, uh, you know, we get that prolonged sequence where uh, Liam Neeson is chasing a guy in the 70s and, you know, he fires a gun and it winds up killing a kid. You know, it's like, okay, I know exactly who this guy is now. I get right. it. I know what drives <laughs> him. I know what haunts him. Okay, we're good. And there's something kind of fascinating about Creasy where it's like, okay, we know he's haunted we know that something horrible happened, but there's something kind of unknowable about him. There's something that will always remain mysterious about him. And uh, I, I think that's part of where the power of the character comes from. In a way. Yeah, I agree. And he I can, think oh, he can right, be sorry. as, oh, no, you're good. Uh, he can be as good or as bad as we want him to be before the, the, the movie opens as it were. And uh, to me, I mean, and maybe this is an awful stance to take, but I think, in my mind, the darker he was and the meaner he was, like, I think the more satisfying this particular story is to me because it's, you know, it takes the uh, the relationship with him and this child to sort of bring him out of that. And it gives him the opportunity to uh, to redeem himself at the end and sort of do something selfless. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. I think part of it also... Of course, he wants to save Dakota Fanning, but I think it's also the idea of like, I can do this one good selfless act and kind of redeem myself a little bit, even though, uh, you know, he probably doesn't think it's going to like wipe away everything he's done, but he can at least end with this nice redemptive act. You know what I mean? Like it's got to, I think that's played the plays a part of it too. Yeah. And I'm glad that we, you know, it's funny. I'm sure, you know, we could probably talk about it for a minute, but there is an alternate ending to this movie that sort of uh, uh, makes literal the title, I think. And it does kind of beautifully pay off a couple of setups from earlier in the film, but it's a very violent conclusion to the character. And I think there's something very fitting about the movie that we have now where Creasy is at peace in his final moments. I think he earned that, you know? 
Um, which have you have you seen the alternate ending? Or? Yes, and uh, okay. oh man, it's been so okay. I, I'm a bad host now because I, <laughs> I it's been so long since I've seen it, and I meant to rewatch it before we did the show, and I just realized, oh shit, I never actually went back and rewatched it, so I'm kind of blanking on what it is uh I, and I, many people don't know obviously i should have spoils a long time ago but also it's like uh you know i think people know by now but i can't yeah i can't i'm blanking right now and i meant to rewatch and i completely forgot so uh yeah please go ahead and remind me so it ends pretty much uh at the moment that um sanchez is is it daniel the voice sanchez is that his name oh yeah so it's like a wrestler's name daniel the voice sanchez you know <laughs> uh that's that's what's in my head uh when i hear it but um no they his men are taking creasy back to him and of course in the film that we have he uh he he dies on the way you know and he he sort of collapses in the car and he he passes peacefully as it were in the original apparently the original ending um they actually make it to Sanchez's house and they drag him in and they kind of plop him on the sofa and Sanchez comes out and he's, he's a talky motherfucker, uh, you know, and he gives this entire uh, Bond villain monologue about how he had, uh, he had promised the Virgin Guadalupe that he wasn't going to kidnap anymore this year. And of course he did. And Creasy was essentially the Virgin's punishment for him. So if he kills Creasy, he'll be cleared of that and he'll be, you know, basically clean again, as it were. And he's saying all of this as he's bringing out like this ornate wooden case and he opens it up and he pulls out, I think, like a golden gun and he loads it. And, you know, Creasy could give a fuck at this point. He's sitting on the couch and there's this great, like, just this small detail. And I love the detail that Scott puts in his movies. And in this one, you know, it's just, he, okay, so Creasy is on the couch and he has that pendant, the, the little necklace of St. Jude, mm -hmm. and it has blood on it. So as this guy is just rambling on and on incessantly, Creasy keeps sticking the, uh, the St. Jude medal in his mouth, trying to suck it clean, you know, and he keeps pulling it out and it just gets bloodier and bloodier because he's bleeding. Mm -hmm. And so finally, the guy reaches the end of his monologue. He has the gun loaded. He's ready to take him out. You know, it's kind of a... Uh, you know, last words, Mr. Bond kind of moment. And Creasy, who earlier in the movie had that marvelous uh, conversation with uh, one of the nuns at PETA's school. You know, they have that little, oh, yeah. kind of that weird little confrontation, you know, where the the madre says that she regretted that Creasy's profession exists in the first place. And they, they quote the Bible back at one another. And there's something kind of like resembling respect at the end of their conversation. But in the midst of all of that, I think... Um, the nun asks him, do you ever see the hand of God in what you do? And he just responds, no, I haven't in a long time. You know, of course, later in the movie, when he straps the, uh, the head of uh, Lermandad uh, to the back of his car, he has that charger, you know, he has that great moment where he, he, he shows the empty charges, like, see this, this is a charger, you know, inmates mm -hmm. in prisons, <laughs> they, uh, they stick these up their anus, you know, to smuggle in drugs and money. Here is a pencil detonator. Here's the charge. Here's C4. You put all those together, you have a bomb and that's what's up your ass right now. You know, and he has a little pager watch. He sends the page for five minutes. They have the conversation. Then he blows them to hell. So he's sitting on the voice's couch and he looks up to him and asks the voice, do you ever see the hand of God in what you do? And the voice just kind of looks at him and says, no, do you? 
And again, this is a guy, you got to think about the arc that he's taken over the course of this movie, where having been posed that question once, he says, no, I haven't in a long time. He ends the movie by answering the voice by saying to that question, do you ever see the hand of God in what you do? I hope so. And he reaches down and he clicks his pager watch for five <laughs> seconds. Uh-huh. And he grins this massive grin. And then the entire house gets blown to hell. Now that's a great ending. I would be completely fine with that ending. But, and it's a fun ending in a way, you know? And again, it kind of makes literal the, uh, the title itself. But man, when you have Harry Gregson Williams score and you have Lisa Gerard you know, singing, and you have him slumping over in that car at the end. Uh, I just, I, that's so much more emotional and it's so much more satisfying and impactful, I think. And it's, it's the ending that the character deserves. Like he, he earned his peace, I think, by the end of the movie. And I will say, I, I think the ending of the movie is as perfect an ending as, 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 Tony Scott certainly ever had in his career and most action movies or revenge flicks could ever hope to have. It is so good that it makes me look past the fact that the movie completely shits the bed in its last five seconds before we reach the credits. And this is something that I didn't always think. And, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. And maybe, maybe you think I'm crazy for this, but the end of the movie is Creasy dying in the car. Mm-hmm. The end of the movie is cutting to that volcano and throwing his name up, right? Why do we then cut to Giancarlo Giannini killing the voice in, in his pool? Why are there sentences thrown up on screen letting us know that this guy died in the course of arrest? Like this was based on a true story. I don't give a shit about these guys. I know that Creasy crippled his operation and that the cops know who he is and that he's not long for the world. I know that that cop is probably going to get him. Why would you undercut the emotion of that final scene and end on a freeze frame of Giancarlo Giannini in black and white? Why? I'm torn here because I, there's multiple things that you've touched on where I'm like, I want this piece of that, but not that part. Um, I, okay. I like that the voice actually does get killed. Cause I, that's a, when, oh boy. I like, I, but I want, I want the ending where Denzel dies in the car. Like I want the peaceful ending. I don't know if I really want to see him explode, blow himself up. Even if he takes the voice and all these people with him. Um, I remember thinking it was very, it's a little bit uh, unsatisfying to watch um, Giancarlo Gianni like shoot the voice. And it's like, that's not, it doesn't feel quite satisfying. I mean, I'm glad that the voice is dead, but it's like, I don't know. It's just the fact that I kind of wish Denzel was the one that did it. Um, And I guess he kind of helped do it, obviously. But um, so I'm torn. I I don't know. I, it's funny because I Googled about the alternate ending. And the first thing that comes up is some article that's like, movies that would have been better with the alternate ending and the first one the list is man on fire but i don't agree i don't think i don't think that would i don't know i don't like that as much i think it's so nice and like it kind of peaceful and tender the the oh my god we gotta talk about this the moment between denzel and dakota fanny when when they basically say goodbye to each other 
Oh my God. Oh my God. Which he's like, do you love me? And he's like, yes, all my heart. I <laughs> cried so hard. I love like, you, Creasy. Oh. <laughs> and and you love me too, don't you? Like yeah. that's a sledgehammer. Oh my God. And he's, you know, he's like, yeah, so all my heart. I'm like, I, it's funny because uh, I don't know if you follow this guy on Twitter. There's a guy on Twitter just goes by that Tony Scott guy at TJ Mackey. Oh, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Okay. He's like the number one Tony Scott guy in the world. He's and he's a great guy. Everyone loves him. Um, he just posts, he's posted this clip. He's of that specific scene of that moment, like two times in the past, like month, I want to say. And both times I watched it, I immediately started crying. <laughs> and I was like, why do you do this? To me? <laughs> but it's like, you know, at around the same time, I told you that I worked at a movie theater watching man on fire with multiple viewings and then big fish which came out at right around the same time there's this thing that starts happening where okay the moment itself makes you cry right mm-hmm. uh with big fish i mean it's obviously you know the uh the the big finale where he brings him to you know the lake and all of his friends are awaiting him right like that's just my goodness in Man on Fire, it's uh, I love you, Creasy. Like that whole scene is just, but with multiple viewings, I find myself, I start tearing up in advance of those moments because I know what's coming. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the more I watch them, the earlier I start getting misty eyed because I know it's coming. I know Lisa Gerard is about to cut my heart out with her voice. I know that <laughs> Dakota Fanning and Denzel Washington just want to, you know, uh annihilate me with the emotion <laughs> of that scene and uh yeah i i think it's it's one of the greatest moments um and i say this with no hyperbole whatsoever i mean every damn word of it i think that's one of the greatest moments any movie ever had I, listen i can't i can't argue i won't argue I will. It, it may be this is oh boy i mean this is very hyperbolic but it may be my favorite moment in any tony scott movie i i think we've come through so much shit to get to that moment. And I think the way that they both play it is perfect. And it and nothing in his filmography hits me like that on any kind of emotional level. Um, I mean, it's, I, it's, it's beautiful and it's very sad. I mean, it's super sad. You're just like, oh man, can't you guys, you know, I wish you could just go off and, you know, um, I guess you're her dad now. I don't know, but <laughs> because uh, Mark Anthony's not around anymore, but um it's oh man it's heartbreaking it's it rips your heart out every time well um, it's 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 sandwiched between that's the thing that's the atom bomb <laughs> of emotion that moment but it's all it's sandwiched on either side by some pretty major like emotional stuff too. like when she asks him where are you going oh and he God. says yeah. i'm going home too i'm going to blue bayou you know fuck really well yeah the whole that's, thing on the that's bridge the movie <laughs> shooting you in the kneecaps yeah, it, or, or yeah. rather, the movie shooting your heart in the kneecaps. Um, <laughs> and then on the other side of that, the mm. music rising and Peta screaming as she races towards her mother, and the mother like shoving the damn brother on and dropping oh, yeah. the gun and picking her up and mm. holding her tight, like this mother who thought she had lost her child forever, and then oh, all of a God. sudden she's yeah. there in her arms again. Yeah. And then, you know, Creasy walking down the bridge and then, you know, mother and child in the car. And then you see Peta look over at him getting loaded into the car and she's crying her eyes out like the entire thing just doesn't stop. <laughs> just an emotional beat down for, for however many minutes it goes on. You're right. It's And we love oh, it. <laughs> I know. I love it. I, 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 I just think it's like the best. I, that makes the whole movie for me. It's so funny because I remember when I was younger, 
I'm getting soft my old age. I don't think it made me cry, which is insane. I don't know what was wrong with like teenage me, but um, I guess I was too tough. But now I'm just, every time I see it, it's just like tears start coming like almost instantly. <laughs> like I was, um, I yeah. no shame whatsoever. I was 23 years old when I watched this movie for the first time. And at the end of it, I'm just, imagine a grown man slumped over in a movie theater by himself because he was watching an after hours previewing the movie for the first time, just going, <laughs> you know it's no shame no shame whatsoever forget titanic everyone talks about crying during all these big movies whatever you know man on fire that's where it's at this movie gives you everything you could want it gives you action and emotion it's just great performances i mean come on what more do you want um it's also i never went back i never answered your question about what rada mitchell's name is lisa by the way lisa Ramos. okay um, um Lisa Ramos and uh, who's who's Mark Anthony uh, Samuel he's, Ramos. Yeah, he's uh, you know, I'm glad the bullet worked for him. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good callback um, with the bullet doesn't work for Denzel. And he's like, hey, maybe it'll work for you. And um, Mark Anthony's really good in this. I never you know, I mean, obviously he's great. Yeah, it, it, he's kind of perfectly cast because the character has to be kind of kind of no backbone, kind of Weasley type guy. <laughs> you know, it's like um I mean, my God, he sells out, gives his own daughter away to be kidnapped to, to get money and, you know, thinking he'll get her back. But obviously he got uh, basically, I guess, double cross, you could say. Um, who does that? What father does to his own kid? I mean, it's insane, you know, and it's just like what a piece of shit he is. And it's like he could tell he just is easily pushed around by people and doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, just um, he plays it really well. I mean, he just he's like, it's not, you know, he's not a likable character, obviously, but he plays it really well. I will say like you almost it, he and it's a testament to him as a performer. I think that in that final scene that he has when he's raging mm -hmm. and just, you know, screaming like you, you do almost feel for him like you do. Like, I, I think he's remarkably stupid, <laughs> but I do believe yeah. him that he honestly thought that nothing was going to happen, that it was all going to be okay and that they were all going to get money and he was going to use that money to make their lives better. And she was just going to sit in a room and eat ice cream for a couple of days and then they would have her back. I honestly believe that he believed that. Right, right. But I mean, so yeah. <laughs> so I don't want him punished because I think he was a bad guy. I want him punished because he was so fucking dumb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, easily manipulated, I would say. I mean, pushed around. I mean, you can tell you feel the pressure was on him from a lot of different directions. And obviously the whole pressure of the money situation, all this stuff. But um, and I believe I, yeah, I believe that he believed it would be that simple. But it's you're kind of still playing with fire. You know what I mean? It's like it, it still see me sounds sounds risky, but uh I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so you you do, he gets, he gets sympathy by the end a little bit, but you're still kind of like, you're right. He's just like, you're so dumb. How did you, how did you go he, for this? And he does cut Mickey Rourke's head off with the sword. So, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's something, you know, that's, that's uh, <laughs> that, that had to hurt because you know, he he's Mark Anthony is no Highlander. You know, it took a few whacks for that to happen. So, uh, you know, he had it coming. It's this Marv had it coming. <laughs> Marv had it coming. Um, uh, I was going to ask you this way earlier, but I forgot. Uh, have you ever seen the original from 1987, the original Man on Fire? Okay, so here's the thing. I, <laughs> I own the book. Okay. Uh, I own the original movie. I picked up that Kino Blu-ray, which here's the thing. When the movie came out, I was such a fan of this film. 
that I tried to find the original movie and I could not find the damn thing anywhere. They didn't put it out on DVD. This is when they were putting everything out on the DVD. If there was any reason whatsoever, any excuse to put an old movie out on the DVD, like say a remake or another adaptation coming out, you know, that shit was going on the shelves. This was 2004. They weren't playing around. And, right. <laughs> you know, for whatever reason, that just, it never came out. Honestly, I don't think there was ever a DVD. I think there was the VHS in the 80s. And then I think there was the Kino Werber, you know, or Kino, whatever the hell, uh, the Blu-ray that came out recently. So I own it. I've seen the trailer. Um, it looks quite different, but I have not seen the original film. I will say that the novel is... Um, the novel is grim. Uh, oh, okay. are, are you are you familiar with what happens in the novel? I'm actually not. The only thing I basically know about the novel um, is that it's just, uh, the difference is that it's set in Italy in the 70s, I believe. Um, so, yeah. Because they were it's... the kidnapping capital of the world at that time um, when you wrote the book, apparently, or one of the, they had so many kidnappings in Italy at that time. Um, and I've seen the original movie, we'll talk about that, but I, I, the book I don't know anything about, honestly, besides that one fact, that's all I know. <laughs> The, the I will say, even though this is set in Mexico City, for the most part, like this, this movie is relatively faithful to, I mean, obviously it cuts out large swaths of, of story, you know, the, the novel goes on at length, it has novelistic digressions, as you would expect, there's an entire subplot with uh, Creasy falling in love with a woman who helps nurse him back to health, and the timeline is different in that um, Creasy actually heals up and trains and acquires info and like uh it puts together in an arsenal so it takes months instead of you know what it takes in this film which is you know uh, uh much faster like i don't mm -hmm. think he ever fully heals up from his initial wounds um but uh, and this this will go dark but in the interest okay. of covering every base uh pita does actually die in the novel they they find oh, her wow. in a trunk and she was raped and Ooh, yeah boy. it's a tough tough read like and so uh that alone is like so you know you you read that and then all of a sudden you you want him to meet out like every horrible thing that he possibly can on the people responsible and he does um but weirdly enough even though you think that he dies at the end of the novel uh he is uh he sort of mows through everybody i think there's one central location where uh the guy responsible is at along with all of his bodyguards and creasy mows his way through them but he is what you think uh is ultimately mortally wounded he is pronounced dead but at the end of the novel there's this sort of uh hint as it were that he and the woman he fell in love with they sort of board a boat and they sail away from Italy forever. And he killed everybody responsible. And now he's going to go live his life. And then there are four more novels. Oh, <laughs> so weirdly enough, John Creasy was like this author's signature character uh, who returned time and time again. And um, so, yeah, his, uh, his name was AJ Connell. And apparently he uh, he passed away a year after the Tony Scott adaptation came out, but uh, he apparently was quite fond of it because of how faithful it was to his book and uh, even right down to keeping a lot of the lines from the book, apparently, which, uh, you know, all credit due. We haven't spoken about him yet, but Brian Helgland and his script. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Helgeland is, I think, one of the best to ever do it uh, when it comes to screenwriting. I mean, Mike, if if only for LA Confidential alone, but 
you know, uh, I mean, my God, I love what he did with, uh, if you've ever seen the director's cut, not the theatrical, which I do think is fun, but the original cut of um, uh, Payback, the Mel Gibson uh, no, this just, adaptation. This just came up, I think, with maybe my friend Mike Scott. Someone was telling me, like, yeah, if you watch it, watch the, is like Payback Straight Up or something, like the Payback director's cut. Is that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which I think I own, but I never watched. Like, so I think it's sitting on the shelf waiting to be watched. So yeah. Um, I but I've not seen it yet. It is uh it's marvelous if you get the okay. chance to watch it. It is uh it feels like an honest to goodness, gritty as all hell 70s movie. It's mean, it's uh it feels authentic, and it's uh, and honestly, it's worthy of actually being an adaptation of the parker novels it's funny uh the are you familiar with the parker character at all yeah hasn't he i know there's like a jason statham version there's been multiple versions no there's right? no there's not there's oh no, there's not oh no it never no, uh <laughs> that never happened we forget oh, about that we never okay. talk about it <laughs> no here's here's what pisses me off about this movie okay we're talking uh -huh. about the Gresham's. if we can take a minute so there was an author named Donald Westlake who wrote under a pen name called uh, Richard Stark. And as Richard Stark, he wrote a series of crime novels about a guy named Parker, who was a thief who, he did not have a heart of gold. He did have a set of principles, but those principles were all about protecting him. He wouldn't kill for the fun of it, but if you were in his way, you know, honestly, the best version of the character that's ever made it to screen is Robert De Niro in Heat. That's the closest oh. I could say that there was to, you know, Parker is a little more rough hewn, whereas uh, De Niro in that movie is a little more, you know, better put together. But you know that moment in Heat where they they hit the armored car and they have the guards lined up outside. I think there are what, like three guards, something like that. And he's just going to have them held there while they rip them off. You know, they steal the money and they go on. But the one fucking crazy guy, uh, right. Kevin Gage's Wangro, I think, kills one of the guards for the fuck of it. So De Niro's character figures, well, we can't leave the other two alive then because this is now murder. So he executes them. Mm -hmm. That to me is Parker. Like, and none of the movies, there was... Um, uh, the John Borman film with uh, Lee Marvin, Point Blank, which is a fantastic movie. I've seen that, yeah, yeah. Okay, but the thing is, is that apparently Westlake, if they were never going to adapt the character properly, they couldn't use his name. So when you watch Point Blank, it's like, what is it, Walker, I think. Yeah, when you watch yeah. uh, uh, The Outfit, which is a great, you know, talking about Rolling Thunder earlier, uh, the director of that made a movie called The Outfit, which was an adaptation of the third Parker novel, um, which starred Robert Duvall as the Parker character. But again, he wasn't, it was a, it's a great movie but he's not Parker. So they don't call him Parker. He's called Macklin in it. Uh, <laughs> Peter Coyote played him once in a movie called Slayground. Um, I think Anna Karina played a version of the character in a French film once. Uh, the character was the subject of a black exploitation movie uh, in the 70s, you know? So he's had all of these different adaptations, but he was never Parker. You even get the payback, which is arguably the closest an adaptation that we ever had with Mel Gibson. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> You know, uh -huh. we didn't we didn't know. All right. right it was right, an right. earlier time. We were unenlightened. We didn't know any better. We watched Mel Gibson movies. Okay, it happened. It was a thing. Um, but no, uh and even still, you know, Westlake was alive at that point and he he saw the movie and was like, Nope. So, you know, Parker becomes Porter. 
in the movie Payback. Um, I would argue that Helglin's Payback Straight Up is even closer to what a Parker movie should be, to the point where he probably should have been called Parker in that, but never mind. The thing that pisses me off <laughs> about the damn Jason Statham movie, and I like Jason Statham. Uh, I mean, just this past year, we had, uh, oh, what was the name of it? Wrath of Man? Movie. Wrath of Man is, yeah. uh, my God, what a movie. It's so good, yeah. <laughs> but So I like Statham. He's done a lot of great work. That movie is a piece of shit, and it would have been, even if it weren't an adaptation of the Parker character, but Westlake died. And what do they do? They make a movie. They not only cast this quintessential like American thug character with Jason Statham and let him keep his accent and rewrite the character to explain <laughs> uh -huh. the accent away. They, but they retitle the book Parker. Like they call their movie Parker. They don't only call him Parker. They call the movie Parker while giving an adaptation of the character that is arguably the furthest away from whatever he was in the books. I despise that son of a son of a... Anyway, I took the long way around here and I'm sorry, but damn it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, all this to say Helglin's payback is great. The director's cut is even better, and he is a fantastic writer and director. And uh, I do think the man on fire. I mean, this is the guy who wrote *L.A. Confidential*. He uh, he did *A Knight's Tale*, which I actually quite like. He uh, yeah. wrote *Mystic River*. You yeah. know, I mean, he he's done marvelous work over the years. Uh, I I think *Man on Fire* is is one of his very best. I honestly can't say that man on fire is a better screenplay than la confidential i can't do that that's fair yeah i mean i think it's a very good script but i do think again that i think the script is really elevated by again the performances mostly of denzel washington dakota fanny and tony scott's direction i think take it to another level where if you had different people in those roles or a different director i don't know if it gets to the level that it's at honestly i mean it's kind of that thing of all the elements kind of came together, you know, it's kind of this magical kind of uh, mixture, but I do, I think those things really elevate his script. It's a good script, but I just think those things take it to like an under complete different level than it would be with other people involved. I agree. I agree 100%. And I will say like his, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the original screenplay, but I mean, Scott seemed to shoot it pretty faithfully. Uh, but then he just hacked out a lot of scenes. I mean, and there's some really interesting stuff um, in there, like uh, an affair between Creasy and Lisa uh, that happens like very briefly. There is a sequence where he saves her, uh, you know, the setup in the movie where uh, she says she wants him to take her shopping and he does. But there mm -hmm. is like this violent, I forget exactly what it is, but there is maybe a gunfight on the streets or something. And she is almost in the line of fire and he saves her and they basically drive away and they're sitting in the seat and they're both amped up. And it basically leads to this. You wouldn't even call it a love scene. And what's funny is that Helglund's script, and I'm going to quote as best I can from memory, <laughs> uh -huh. but he honestly says something like in the script, it reads something like, look, there's no polite way to say what they're doing. They're fucking, you know, it's, <laughs> And I think, yeah, I think that was in the 87 version. There's a more like defined like subplot with Creasy having an affair with the wife. Yes. I, and Glad is not in this version. I feel like it's like an extra P 
piece we just don't need. I there is some weird kind of it feels like there's some kind of sexual tension there almost uh, between them. I think when she comes into a room at some point, like she comes to his room and it's like, you kind of feel it, but we don't need to go all the way to see him actually having the affair. I feel like, you know what I mean? It's I, I agree. And yet there is this weird moment that still exists in the cut that we have when um, she is talking to him. It's after Pete has been kidnapped. It might be in that sequence where they're in the room and she says something like, I've wondered if this is because of what we did. Or something like that. And it just, it's the slightest hint that something may have happened. And, but they never go further than that. You know, mm-hmm. nothing more is said about that. And then she, she sort of tweaks that to becoming, you know, kind of like her own guilt about her being what she thought was a selfish mother. And, um, but yeah, I just, I, I thought that was kind of a fascinating note for them to have played. I agree with you. Like we didn't need, I don't think we needed the full on sequence with her and him in the car but it what is left in the movie is just it's interesting you know it's just another note that's played that i think uh makes the entire sort of tapestry that much more rich yeah it hints at something where you almost think like wait are they having an affair but it's never explicitly stated it's kind of just like there's something in the air between them which is in, which i think is interesting but uh um a couple things the original too so there's a lot of things here with uh Tony Scott almost directed the original Man on Fire. I don't know if you knew this or not. Um, yes, yeah. He um, and apparently it wasn't a matter of somebody coming to him. Like he developed it, did he not? Like he wanted he, to do it, but he really had no pedigree at the time. It was like '83. He had like he. I don't think. I think he hadn't even done The Hunger yet. Then he did The Hunger, and it still wasn't quite kicking around. He wanted to do it, but it wasn't happening. Then he got involved in Top Gun, and then they were making the movie basically. So it just didn't line up i believe like the timing um like he could i'm sure he kind of got done after he did top gun because he could have probably done whatever the fuck he wanted uh but but they'd already kind of gone on without him um and i, I will say this for the original i think it's fairly um it's kind of standard it's it especially it's, it's really hard to compare to this one it's almost it's very unfair i feel like it plays very it's just very unextraordinary i feel like it plays it very straight and it's not very spectacular um scott glenn is pretty good as creasy i will say that but i i think i remember the it's funny i saw like two months ago and i feel like it it i feel like i barely remember most of it um but uh at the girl that plays the i don't think her name's Peta, but the girl that plays that role is not a very good actress i think like, i feel bad saying about a kid but i just think she's not a very good actor again especially compared to Dakota fanning which seems so unfair, <laughs> but but I just it's so it's so hard. To... It sounds like you would give the movie around a thirty nine percent. That's what I'm getting here. Yeah, that you know maybe push it into the forties. It's just it's it's so I think it's very underwhelming, especially kind of if you watch this version first. It's it's super. I just can't separate them in my mind. And there are a couple of good sequences. Um, again, Scott Glenn is good. Um, I can tell you some spoiler type stuff when we are off recording, but um, it goes in different directions story-wise um, than this one does. But uh, I just, you know, I was kind of really underwhelmed by it, which was kind of what I was worried about and why I didn't watch it for the longest time. But uh, this is kind of a situation where I feel like people forget there even is an original version. They just know the Tony Scott Denzel version. And people are like, there's an original Man on Fire. <laughs> like, you know, it's not talked about very much, I feel like. So um that's always interesting. People are like, oh, there's a there's an original version of this. But uh <laughs> I'm glad Tony and they had to update the story because I mentioned already that the book was in Italy, the 87 movies in Italy. Um, but by the time they made this, that wasn't Italy had like a 
less than 1% kidnap or something. It was insane. It was like they had no kidnappings, but Mexico city, unfortunately um, had become a major kidnapping like uh, hub. I don't have to call it like, it's just a, a hot spot for kidnappings. And um, I, I, I want to ask yeah. you a question about that. Actually. Yes. So you watch this movie, mm-hmm. which portrays Mexico city and the surrounding areas as this utter hellhole with like you know people willing to kidnap you on every corner like all of these violent events happen and of course you know a lot of them in the latter half are all you know wrought by creasy himself our hero sure but explosions and gunfights in streets and kidnappings and just all sorts of horrible stuff and you get to the end and our hero dies you know at the hands of the uh <laughs> you know our our uh uh, you know, the villains, as it were. I mean, he was shot by them and he gets to, you know, pass on peacefully, as we noted. And then, you know, we see a cop executing a suspect in cold blood in a right. swimming pool. <laughs> and then we cut to black and it says, special thanks to Mexico City, a very special place. That gets the biggest gut laugh out of me, like every time. It seems so disingenuous, given everything that's come before. Well, here's the funny thing. I know Tony Scott, like, loves Mexico. Because he shot revenge down there. And I remember reading a few things where also not a movie that acts as a very good travelogue. <laughs> this is true. This is it's funny. The movies, the movies he's making are not like great, like, you know, endorsements of Mexico. But Mexico's again, is... just kind of like, you know, message to Tony Scott, like, can you maybe not love us that much? <laughs> maybe again, I mean, movie versus reality, all the reality of Mexico City at the time was the kidnappings were bad, but um, he loved it. He, I think he, there's a, cause Tony Scott's like a real adventurous guy. He was a thrill seeking guy. Maybe there was some element of like, he just thought Mexico was so exciting that he loved it. I mean, he tell like he genuinely loved it. I think he lived down there, I believe, um, or at least a house down there. Um, he loved it. So that's, I, I don't think that thing at the end is disingenuous at all. I think he genuinely like, I, I think while acknowledging some of the bad parts, I guess, because he's making an action movie about kidnapping. It's obviously you have to pull the dark side of of this city out. Uh, he still loves it. It's it is interesting. I I agree, but um, of course, like every place, I mean, you can't. You know, it's it. There's good and there's bad. You know, and there was a lot of good people trying to live their lives in Mexico, and they've got to deal with like cartels and kidnapping. You know, and um, so I think Tony Scott showed the bad of of what was going on but i think he still loves that mexico city and the whole country honestly i he he i think he loves it down there i agree i agree and plus i i just want to note that i'm not somebody who believes that mexico is a uh, a terrible place but just <laughs> given the juxtaposition of like what the movie has just bludgeoned us with for two plus hours and then the first thing that we see uh, after the terrible last five seconds is that like I just I I find that endlessly amusing it is <laughs> I mean it is interesting and a funny juxtaposition about we've been through all this horrible stuff oh maybe it was like Tony's very small little nod of like listen it's not all bad down there. it's like there's wonderful people that live down there <laughs> like um just rough stuff going on I mean the the funny thing is that when they were filming the movie down there they had a lot of uh, kind of incidents around the set if you read about this um, where there was just a lot of security like Fox had sent a lot of security down because you know now the actors were huge kidnapping targets as you could imagine I mean oh my god yeah <laughs> like and uh, Tony Scott tells an insane story that he tells 
like it's no big deal and you hear it and you're like this is crazy like you almost died where him and i think a few other guys went to go location scout uh very late at night doesn't seem a good idea um somewhere in some neighborhood or a city down there that they were told i think was dangerous and they still went at night with like four guys and one bodyguard and were location scouting and they had you know uh they had all this like equipment on them and they probably looked like easy targets and they were approached by like a gang of like like uh teenagers i think and then there was like a another gang that showed up uh and they were surrounded so it's like tony scott a couple other guys and one bodyguard um who pulls his gun but they had there's like dozens of guys around so what's he gonna do and then a cop rolls up and tries to get involved and then a whole melee breaks out and everyone's fighting each other and tony and a couple other guys managed to like escape but they've left their bodyguard and the bodyguard apparently like got the shit kicked out of him and luckily they Oof. saved him um but tony and other guys were like watching they got like a little bit farther away but then some i think one of the guys in the gang had the bodyguard and was like why don't you come back down here or we're gonna kill him or something and and i think it's it's unclear i think tony said it doesn't matter how it resolved i don't know how tony does not remember how it resolved because that's an insane story i <laughs> but, have a guess yeah <laughs> you paid him off or <laughs> i think denzel is a method actor <laughs> denzel showed up I think this was an opportunity for some practice, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe those guys aren't with us anymore. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. It sounded like he must have negotiated something. I don't know. They got the guy back. They And then Fox wanted to shut the whole production down. Fox was like, this is too dangerous. This is insane. What are you doing? Like, you've got to go somewhere else or you've got to shut this thing down. And apparently Tony Sweet talked to him. He's very good at this. He, uh, he apparently multiple times he'd gotten them to like back off and uh, in other movies, too. And uh, they got to stay, but they couldn't go back to that specific neighborhood wherever they were. But um, and Tony tells the story on like the the extra DVD extra so casually, like it's like nothing happened. And I'm like, this would be the craziest thing ever happened to me. And he's just like, ah. And then we kind of rolled into some danger, and it was kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing. You should listen to him tell that story. It's just like grinning I'm, ear to ear, no doubt. I'm, yes, he was. He's so casual about it. Um, it's wild. Um, so they had yeah they had all kinds of stuff going on but um apparently after that everything was okay um and i'm just looking at the rest of my notes here because i we probably need to wrap up soon it's getting a little late but uh um have you have you ever heard the story of dakota fanning talking about when she first met tony scott no i haven't it's like the cutest thing you'll ever see i i can't really do it justice i'll probably have to send you the clip afterwards but she describes him like to a t she's like she's like when i first met tony we were i was at a restaurant he walked in in his red hat and his short shorts and his vest <laughs> and all this stuff hanging down and he's like hi i'm tony like dakota fan doing this like compression of tony scott <laughs> and it's like the most adorable thing you've ever seen and uh um denzel calling him on the interview he's like here comes nine camera tony with all his cameras doing all this like all this crazy shit um it's i'll def i'll define these clips for you because they're pretty good but uh um trying to think what else i had here um we mentioned tony scott almost did the original um this actually remake started because the producer of the original called tony up randomly i guess he'd seen his original on tv and was like hey tony do you want to remake man on fire because i think we could do it better this time and uh tony was on board and then he he specifically wanted um brian helgeland to write it um oh, and wow. funny enough this all came full circles brian helgeland 
went to a place called Video Archive in Manhattan Beach in 1989, which might sound familiar to people uh, yep. <laughs> because that was uh, Video Archive was Tarantino's video store he worked at. And he gave Brian Helgeland the original Man on Fire to watch the recommendation. <laughs> it all came full circle. That um, he wrote Man on Fire for Tony, and Tony got to finally do his version of it. Um, so yeah, all of that. I just want to show my notes here before we wrap up. But I, anything else you really want to say about Man on Fire before we have to wrap up here? Well, I just to, to that, I, I think that's fantastic because <laughs> you know I I gotta say I'm glad that 2004 Tony Scott made man on fire more than 1983 tony scott yeah. not that there is anything wrong with 1983 tony scott i mean he he was doing great stuff even then but i think this movie is just it, it's perfect i wouldn't want to change a thing about it uh other than the last five seconds you know i would <laughs> i would hack that out with garden shears but um no, I just, I, I, I'm so glad that he made this movie when he did in his career. I'm glad that he was experimenting. I'm glad that he was taking those big swings stylistically. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that he found a story that he could, uh, you know, again, not just tell this utterly badass revenge story, but also just, you know, give the story a great deal of heart. And um, again, you know, going back to what I said earlier at the beginning of this podcast, I think that, uh, you know, the man was a master and I don't think we appreciate him nearly enough. And we sure as hell do not appreciate Men on Fire nearly enough. 39% good. <laughs> Cali. It's it's getting its due now, I think. I think that people have seen it there. He was a little ahead of the curve on all this kind of stuff he was doing because uh, um, I feel like, I think I read in the book, they pointed out like, you know, the Bourne movies were just coming to coming out around 04. I think they already started to come out, but that kind of like shakier kind of action do you and, not feel like all of that is kind of chaotic and unfocused compared to what as chaotic oh. as his stuff feels <laughs> yeah it's also very very controlled and it's not showy. whereas when paul greengrass grabs the uh, the mat box and shakes the living fuck out of the camera <laughs> you know yeah i mean it can be intense in a movie but it's just it the to me there isn't I, and I don't want to knock Paul Greengrass. Maybe I should let this uh, this 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 idea go. But I just I, I I see I prefer. Let's let me put it that way. I prefer what Tony Scott does when he's making those big stylistic flourishes because it's always in service to something. It may seem chaotic, but it, he is getting the exact reaction out of you that he wants instead of just you know throwing whatever you can at the wall and you know praying for the best. I feel the same way about. Um, you know, Oliver Stone sometimes, you know, with natural born killers or U-turn where, uh, yeah, you know, let's, let's jump in there and film this with three different types of film stocks. And it's like, okay, why, <laughs> why are you doing that? Just for the fuck of it? A couple of people talking. Okay. You know, whatever. Whereas you watch somebody like Tony Scott do it with, you know, again, beat the devil or, uh, man on fire domino. Uh, it's always in service to the emotion. It's always in service to what he wants to pull out of you as a viewer. And I, 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 I think he was marvelous at that. And I, I love this part of his career. Uh, again, I think man on fire is the best thing that he done through, you know, during that period. And I think uh, man on fire is the best thing that he ever did. And I will, uh, I will always stick to my guns on that. I agree. I mean, I think, I think crimson tide is very close. I think that's an amazing movie. It's much more like standard, straightforward Hollywood blockbuster compared to man on fire um i love true romance a lot uh 
I mean, there's he has so many good ones. I there's even the ones that I think aren't as good, which would be like the fan or Top Gun. Uh, I don't think they're like complete duds of movies. You know, what I mean, I think there's something in all of those that are interesting or cool or stylistic, like cool stylistic touch or something. Yeah, he he never made a bad film. I don't yeah. think. I never thought he completely struck out. I feel like maybe the worst was like he hit a single, which is a baseball analogy for the fan, which is ironic. But it's like, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't think he ever completely just whiffed it. I don't think he ever completely missed on anything. Um, and I mean, you know, even stuff like, uh, you know, I, well, I was getting ready to say even movies that were uh, sort of underloved, but again, uh, Man on Fire, not loved enough, but something like The Last Boy Scout. That oh, movie yeah. is great. <laughs> Why so do people not love that film? I don't, I don't know. I love that movie. The more time I watch it, I'm like, oh my God, this movie is so entertaining. I mean, it's, it's also this weird, dark kind of mean streak through it, which I think is like probably Shane Black's script. I know there was a, there was a lot more dark stuff in there. They kind of left off, but uh, um, it's, uh, and that movie had a very trouble reduction too. I'm surprised it's as good as it is because it's not like nobody liked each other in that movie, <laughs> um, which I find fascinating and very entertaining. But uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think he was great. I, I'm glad you brought up about like, Tony's stylistic choice, I feel like, have intent. This is what I'm saying. Like, I've seen this for a few times this podcast where I feel like there's a lot of people out there who are like hack directors who just do stuff to do stuff. And I feel like I've heard Tony have an explanation for most, almost all the choices he makes that you think might think are weird. Like, even the subtitle thing. Uh, well, the subtitles in the car interrogation and Man on Fire, he said he put those up there. He was kind of experimenting as like a way to kind of keep people almost give them like a distance uh, between the movie where because that scene's so rough and so intense that it's almost like he gives you this little like reminder you're watching a movie if that makes sense I think I'm kind of misquoting but he was trying to give you this little like kind of reality kind of break where it's like okay if this is really intense but it's a movie there's subtitles flying around you know that kind of thing um which is crazy because for whatever reason it has the exact opposite effect on me. <laughs> like that, that stuff only pulls me deeper into it, you know? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then all the stuff, like people say it gets so chaotic. And I love the whole Tony Scott said, like, oh, I was trying to get in Creasy's like fractured mindset, like how things he's looking over here. He's always like, he's got his head on a swivel. He's always looking at all these threats going around um, and how chaotic his mind would be and try to get in his mind. And he's doing all this crazy stuff with the camera and different film stocks. And there's even a thing on the behind the scenes where they put Denzel on like one of those like um, little kid, like not like a, not like a carousel, but like uh, you'd see it like a, like a park where you just kind of push it around. It spins in a circle. Um, they put Denzel on one of those things, just spin it around with the camera. So it's like, he's, he's spinning. It's this crazy effect. And uh, I mean, but it's like everything I think has in Tony's mind an intent. It's not like he's just doing it to be like, this is cool. You know, <laughs> maybe he does think it looks cool, but he has a reason for it, which I appreciate. Um, and he's a great stylist. He's like one of the best. Um, and that, I'd even, we, I mean, there's so much, <laughs> I'm trying to wrap up, but there's so much to talk about. Um, all those like action sequences or uh, kind of interrogation sequences have like such an energy to them. I love um, the attack where he just kind of, he just like fucking shoots an RPG into a street in broad daylight. <laughs> and then he just walks out firing his gun. I mean, it looks cool as shit. I'm going to say, and then like he gets in the flaming car with the guy and takes him away. Like he is just at that point, he's really at the fucking pier. That's the third guy, the third interrogation. And he's just like, I'm going to blow up a car in the middle of the road, this busy intersection. I'm going to just walk out there and fire and get in the car and um, take this guy away. And, uh, and I love, he has some great line readings in that when he has like the guy with the C4 pizzazz. 
like I wish you had more time. Like these like little <laughs> interesting, like, and the way he says he describes everything to him. I mean, I love, I fucking love Denzel. He's one of my favorite actors of all time. Like he's he's so good. Like I just think he's like always interesting, always like good. Um I hardly ever see him like be bored or sleepwalk through things. Uh uh if you saw ever. I don't think yeah. I ever have. I, the, I saw that movie. Oh God, what was it called? The Little Things with Jared Leto and, um, oh God, the guy from Bohemian uh, Rhapsody, Rami uh, Malek. Yes, and they're both being ridiculous in that movie. I feel like, and Denzel seems slightly bored, but even like Denzel, like not fully checked in, is still great. I mean, he's still, well, good. I'll say he's not great, but in that movie, but the movie's not great, but he stills like bringing it when he's on like half power. I feel like he's you know he. I rarely never see him like Sleepwalker completely check out he's he's always in and he's very interesting in this movie and he completely sells you know that he's like on this like revenge war path and i i love it i love i buy the whole thing i'm so into it <laughs> like um yeah i love this movie i'm glad we're on the same page on that because um this is the one i was probably the most excited to talk about through this whole unscottable series we finally got here <laughs> can you imagine to you know we're talking about denzel had the film followed the trajectory of the original novel and we might have had like a, a series of John Creasy films. Um, uh, that might've been his own signature action franchise. One, one could imagine, you know, Man on Fire 2, you know, which maybe wouldn't have been nearly as good. And then there would have been a Woman on Fire TV series spinoff with Queen <laughs> Latifah playing Jonna Creasy. And it would have been, why did they let that happen to the Equalizer? Why? It was such a good movie. Forgot that show existed. Um, I do really like those Equalizer movies, actually. <laughs> um, somebody pointed out, I think, oh, I can't remember who it was, but they feel like Antoine Fuqua has become like Denzel's new Tony Scott since Tony Scott passed away hmm. because the movies he's done with him, uh, he kind of, he works with him a lot now. Um, and it kind of feels like, oh man, if Tony was still alive, he'd be doing, you know, probably more of these movies with Tony because I could see. A version of the Equalizer movies where Tony Scott was the director, you know. Um, well, Fuqua, I think, was initially approached for Man on Fire. Uh, this would have been after Training Day, and uh, they said that Michael Bay was approached too. And I, I don't want to see Michael Bay's Man on Fire, and I'm not. I won't hate on Michael Bay. I I appreciate what the guy does, even if I don't always like it, but. I don't want to see that dude's version of the story, you know? Yeah. I mean, especially in 04, I think it would have been um, too bombastic or ridiculous. I, there, he would I, only use RPGs, <laughs> not just in that one scene, just, you know. He put an RPG up that guy's ass and fire it. I think yes. be, <laughs> he'd yeah. have his finger on the trigger the entire time, kneeling on the ground, you know, aiming towards the back of a skull. Uh, there would be the scene where he taped the guy's fingers to the steering wheel and he would hop in and point the RPG at one of the fingers. Like it just, it would get ridiculous. <laughs> Everything oh. would go boom. In yeah, the movie. I will uh, say, I, I don't know if you saw Ambulance yet. Uh, no, but I want to. It looks like a blast. Really liked it. And I feel like Michael Bay is is kind of getting into his older years and kind of softening up a little bit. And um, a lot of people said this too. It's not my original thought, but that it Ambulance feels like it definitely could have been a Tony Scott movie. Like Ooh. it really feels like it could have been his. And I wish Tony was around to play with these drones that Michael Bay is playing with because there's some amazing like drone work. And I feel so like let me let me yeah. tell you, just with that, you have uh, turned that movie into a uh, 
you know, wait for VOD to, hey, maybe I'll check this out in theaters. I hope it's still there because I know it didn't make a lot of money, but it, uh, it, it probably is still out. But yeah, I thought it was really good. And I was like feeling when I was watching, like this does feel like it could have been a Tony movie. And he would have loved these drones because he likes to experiment with stuff. And I feel like he would have found these things and been like, let's go nuts with these drone cameras because it's, it's so much fun. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty great. Um, I was going to say, I, we didn't mention this, but uh, how do you feel about the Denzel, Tony Scott, like pairings overall? Because I really think they're one of like, I mean, it's probably a personal favorite thing, but really one of our best actor director duos. Honestly, I, I love them as a team. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you could tell that was, you know, Denzel may very well have been his muse yeah. um, and what a muse to have, like my goodness. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look at I, the work speaks for itself. So, you know, look at, look at what they did together. Uh, you know, if Denzel had played Domino, would I like that movie more? Probably. Um <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, That's okay. I, give it a chance. Give it a chance. Let me I know what you I think. I, <laughs> I think it's good. Think about it as like a satire of mid-2000s culture, and you'll be like, holy shit, this is really kind of hitting something special. <laughs> so, I, I will I will report back on that. I, I absolutely <laughs> will. But no, I agree with you. I uh, you know, what a what a great partnership and one, you know, that was sadly cut short ultimately. Yeah. You know, what might they have done in the last decade, you know? Oh man, this is the question I ask all the time about what Tony Scott would have been doing in the last decade. And uh I don't know. I, I every time I see that Top Gun 2 trailer, which I actually am excited for that new Top Gun movie, I thought, man, Tony would have been doing this, I think, because he was actually, I think, location scouting right before he died for Top Gun 2. They were planning it that long ago. Um so I'm like, oh he could have been doing this. And like I don't know. He probably would it's it's weird because the landscape is so different now with the kind of movies he was making um, to go to theaters. I feel like he might've been doing like more TV, more streaming stuff. I don't know. Like maybe he still would have had movies that go to, but those like 40, 50, $60 million kind of adult action movies, like don't come around. Ambulance is a great example. I mean, that movie costs like, I think 40 million and it didn't do that well. And um, it's weird. The landscape is so different now. I'm just so curious what would, his place have been you know um but i don't know it's very interesting but i'm sure him and denzel would have done a couple more movies together by now for sure so oh no doubt yeah i i who knows what they would have done but i and plus you know that's i mean what might he have done at any point in his career uh you know i was doing a bit of reading and i saw that at one point he was due to you know do this massive like full-on cast of thousands epic remake of the warriors which my goodness, you know, and <laughs> yeah. uh, I do uh, I do an article series for Bloody Disgusting called Phantom Limbs, which is all about uh, unproduced horror sequels and remakes. And I was lucky enough to uh, to speak with Peter Briggs about his take on Judge Dredd, which was meant to be directed by Tony Scott and star Arnold Schwarzenegger. And oh man, <laughs> do I wish we had that movie. That's I, like my I, dream movie. You just told me right there. <laughs> Well, it, and it was a it was a Briggs who was a huge fan of the uh, the Judge Dredd comic. He didn't do the uh, you know the safe thing, which is what the Stallone movie ultimately did, which is kind of the you know not an origin story, but a basic introduction to the character in that kind of fascist world. And mm -hmm. uh, no, he dove right into Judge Death, and so this would have been a full on sci fi action horror movie with it would have needed a massive budget and you would have had Schwarzenegger in the uh, Judge Dredd costume never taking his helmet off 
blasting like otherworldly ghouls as oh filmed God. by Tony Scott. Why do we not have this movie? <laughs> this this is breaking my heart right now. This doesn't exist. It's like, oh my God, this is like my dream movie that the Disney. Oh my God. This was, was this around the same time that the, the Stallone one actually came out? Was it earlier? Uh, yes. Yeah. It would have okay. been, uh, I think it was early nineties when it was being developed oh. and ultimately it became what it became, which I, and I will say, I do quite like the movie that we have. Uh, I think it's charming in its own right. Uh, yeah, it does it do some sacrilegious stuff with the character? Sure, but <laughs> on its own, I think it's a, yeah. a beautiful and uh, fun film. Uh, and I like the Carl Urban movie too, which is uh, a really ugly movie, but intentionally so, but also kind of fun in its own way. Seems but, much uh, truer to the character. I mean, just the fact that he keeps his helmet on the whole time is like a better start. Uh, it's like I, I'm not the biggest judge. I don't know the comics super well, but from what I everyone said, it's much truer to the... If you smash the two together, you get something that is true to the comics because the Stallone movie nailed like the design of the comics and the humor. No, uh, not fucking Rob Schneider, but I mean... The, <laughs> The more clever humor yeah. that can be found throughout the movie when it's playing more of a satire than a, a, a dipshit playing for yucks, uh, you know, <laughs> Schneider. But, um, you know, whereas the the 2012 film, like Urban's Dread, that's Dread from the comics. He is he's humorless and he is, uh, you know, he is brutal. And so, you know, if you pluck him out of that movie and you drop him into the Stallone film, you have something approaching the comic book, I think. Yeah, I, I still have a soft, soft spot for the Stallone one because I saw it when I was like a young kid, probably too young to be watching that movie. But uh, I don't remember <laughs> being super, I don't remember, it being, I know it's Radar, right? But I don't remember it being like insanely violent. I mean, the Dread from 2012 is very violent, but uh, and I love that movie. That movie's great. Um, is, the, is the Stallone movie R? It's, I don't know. Now I'm <laughs> I'm really questioning. This I know there is the cannibal stuff, the cannibal family stuff in the middle of the film, but I, for whatever reason, I wanted to think that it, they had to cut that back to get a, a lower Yeah, it does not have the were, feel of an R-rated movie. No, and they R. were going up against uh, Batman Forever that summer too, so. Mm -hmm. It is R. And this is weird because everything on the, the parents' guide is like mild to moderate to none. So I'm like, so what was the, <laughs> what was the, the part that got an R? Um, Boo. I don't know. Yeah, it feels to me, it always felt like I should be allowed to watch this as a kid because it doesn't seem that hard of an R. But uh, um, the dread from 2012 is a hard R. But... I felt the exact same way about Robocop. But at the same time, I probably shouldn't have watched Robocop when I was a kid. Oh, I watched Robocop. I did. Story many times I show way too young, like five or something. Like, imagine <laughs> well, there were toys. How you know, the hell were you going to have RoboCop toys <laughs> and not let a kid watch the movie? I mean, come on. This is, I mean, what a bizarre, this is a, whatever, this is a really tangent, but the, I just, I was just saying, there's a, someone brought up the RoboCop cartoon that came out in like 89, 90. Um, and there was, there was a weird trend of like making R-rated things like pointed toward children, like Toxic uh, Avenger had a uh, cartoon. Rambo? Rambo, RoboCop, Terminator 2 had a bunch of toys. Um, uh, another movie I always thought like Terminator 2 felt like a soft R to me. Like there's a couple moments you could cut out and like, uh, and it'd get P13 probably, especially nowadays. But um, yeah, there was a weird, I guess they, they were, they were at a loss of things to sell to children. I don't know what, where the line was, but they were like, eh, fuck it. Uh, sell RoboCop to kids. So um, I'm glad, like I said, I already noted this, <laughs> but I'm glad that Tony Scott, 2004, Tony Scott made men on fire, but you know what? 
had Tony Scott made Man on Fire in the late 80s, maybe we could have gotten a John Creasy action figure with like a, a an RPG launcher. You know, it would have been oversized. You press the little spring-loaded thing, it fires it at, uh, you know, all the villains. Oh. I, I, would have, I would have had that toy. I would have watched the cartoon. Um, <laughs> Someone's probably got a custom-made Denzel Man on Fire action figure you could probably find on the internet. It's hilarious. Come on, McFarland. Come on, with, with RPG How do we not... and pistol included. And yeah, <laughs> like, um, if we can get a John Wick action figure, we damn well can get a Creasy figure. This is true. This is true. Um, uh, yeah. So I guess we should probably wrap up because now we're just talking about other <laughs> Judge Dredd and toys from the eighties. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I love this movie so much. My favorite Tony Scott movie. Um, oh, really quick. So this is clearly your favorite Tony Scott movie. What would be your like second and third favorite Tony Scott movies? Uh, True Romance. Okay. And honestly, like I know this is going to be sacrilegious and everyone's going to be like, how could you not include this? Um, Probably The Last Boy Scout. No, I think it's a very popular pick. I think that's like, I see that in his like people's top five a lot for Tony Scott. Okay, cool. I think you're fine on that. I don't think it's that crazy. (laughs) I think if you'd said like, Taking a Pelham one, two, three, or um, yeah, no, the fan or something. <laughs> um, you know, I, but uh, but yeah, okay, all right, that's a good, that's a solid top three. I like that. So, um, well, I, yeah, I guess to say wrap up, we both love this movie. It's Tony Scott's masterpiece. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes was wrong. <laughs> all the they damn well were. were. Critics were so wrong. All the, yeah, all the blurbs are like, this is just a violent mess for two and a half hours. I'm like, what are you? Ugh. <sighs> anyway, it's infuriating. But anyway, uh, he stripped of their credentials. <laughs> their even, review should be stricken from the record even my uh, boy uh ebert uh who was a big fan of when i was younger i saw he had a i don't know how negative it was they pulled a blurb but i, I thought i remember him like i don't know if he shit on it but he definitely had something about like the violence uh Ebs, come I, on <laughs> damn it that's all they could focus on was like the violence and the crazy the moments of crazy editing which is not the whole movie again like the first hour like i think keeps it pretty you know level it's not that crazy it kind of blows up in the second half when it's supposed to blow up because i do not for the life of me understand how you watch that movie with its first 50 minutes of that relationship and then you end with the ending that it has right and you come out bitching about the violence i do not understand that like all they could focus on i don't understand um it's crazy. They get so involved in stuff. But oh, last thing I have to mention before we get. Did you this is this blows my mind. That club, that whole club scene when Denzel goes in that club and they end with it burning down. They shot that all in one night, apparently. Oh wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is when I heard that, I was like, no, no way. No way. Like I think they said they had to do all the the outside stuff, maybe the inside. It was like there was so much. And they had they were handing out cameras to like random people just to grab as much footage as they could because they had like I don't know, 16 cameras on the set. And they had all these like different cameras. The studio was like, Tony, why do you need all these fucking cameras? And he's like, just don't ask, don't, don't worry about it. I need them. <laughs> and they just were running all these cameras. And yeah, they did that whole thing. The The place blows up. Like they said, the sun was about to rise. Like they were that close and they blow the place up. Like they was that close. Um, and yeah. And oh, also the whole thing was almost shot in sequence. And Denzel started talking to, Dakota Fanning more behind the scenes as the movie went along. He was kind of doing a little bit of a method thing. Not like a Jared Leto, I'm being an asshole. But like they, they him and Dakota Fanning both kind of method. We do he, not want Jared Leto <laughs> around 2004 era Dakota Fanning. That's oh, a fact. No. <laughs> Just, yeah, to be clear. And, uh, but I didn't tell the thing where it's like at first he didn't really socialize with her. 
And then he started talking to her more. And then as it went along, they hung out. They were like buddies and when it got closer to, you know, and as it went along, which I thought was kind of cool, which I'm like, that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with that method acting, but not like the whole, like I sent my cast members like a pig's head for whatever, you know, whatever reason Jerry Leto does those kind of things. But, um, which I think is it, their relationship is just, God damn it. It's so good. I, oh, it's like, I have too many things to say about this movie. It's just insane. So that's it, um, you know, and that is maybe the best sort of, um, that's a sign of a great director that I think who can get that invested in the drama of his, what is essentially a genre piece, right? When you can watch their movie and get wrapped up in what is essentially the setup and be perfectly fine. If the genre elements never intrude, I could watch a movie about a bodyguard with no will left to live being brought back to life by his young charge who just doggedly wants to befriend him. If you just continued on with her burping, you know, and pissing <laughs> off her piano teacher and then Creasy trying to angle for her to, you know, with her dad to be, uh, you know, a, a swimmer instead of a pianist and, you know, just continuing to follow those relationships until to whatever conclusion they would have come to and just kept it a drama. Uh, I, as a viewer, I would have been fine with that. I was so invested in those characters in that relationship that I would be okay with that. You know, um, yeah, there could be a whole movie where it's like, he's just trying to get her to win a swim meet or something. It's like a dry, her parents like don't care. And he's like the, the guardian. I'll watch that drama. That's fine. Oh, hundred percent. hundred percent. That uh, I just, I mean, it's so great. Cause they both like the setup is so simple. It's like, they both need something like her parents are kind of like absent, especially her dad is like not very present. And um, she's looking for a parental figure and he just needs something to care about and they find each other and it's it's so beautiful and oh man it's so well done I could we like another hour in this movie but I have to stop at some point but um so good so good did you, do you want final thoughts before we wrap up uh final thoughts I wish we had more time oh that's perfect that's but we <laughs> yeah. don't so we will move on but I'm just gonna throw this out there listeners out there Pester Matt on Twitter. I won't be there to see it, but go ahead and do it <laughs> and let him know that you want the man on fire cast. Just throw it out there. Cast on fire. I don't know. I'm not great at titles, but just figure it out and we'll do that. Uh, just throwing that out there. It's just an idea. Just consider it. Okay. <laughs> but the movie, we, that is the first step in us waging war against Rotten Tomatoes to raise the score to 100. And we're going to get there one episode at a time, one <laughs> critic at a time. Maybe that's the conceit. We hunt down all of the critics like Creasy would, the people who took PETA, and we invite them on the show. And then we just bludgeon them with how wrong they are until they request oh. to re, you know, rewrite their review. Oh, I think it's, <laughs> it's a foolproof plan. I don't know. Sadly, I know we can't get Roger Ebert. He sadly passed away. So we'll have to just, we'll have to just raise his score annually. Uh, I don't know how many other critics we can find. And just, uh, yeah, I think we'll, I mean, what a premise. We just talked them into like raising their score. Like, listen, hear us out. We need you guys to go back and uh, change that man on fire rating to get a, a positive Rotten Tomatoes score. Hell yes. Oh, all right. We can well, do it. And we're going to do it. It's, it's what Creasy would want. This to honor Creasy. Um, the wish you had more timeline was great to end on. So we should really, I'm just going to stop right there. But uh, so, <laughs> thank you again for doing this so much and waiting so patiently for like a year when I first announced this and you were like, I want to do Man on Fire. 
and that was so far away at that point. So um, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. And I, I, I thought we had a great chat. I had an absolute blast. So, uh, so thank you so much for having me on. Oh yeah. This was, I mean, again, the one I've been looking forward to the most and I had a great time talking about it and it was great conversation, I think. So um, yeah, thank you again. I will get, go ahead and plug all the stuff. People can follow you podcast, social media, all that kind of stuff. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> formerly on Twitter. <laughs> so yes. Uh, so I was on Twitter. I, I am in this weird holding pattern right now where I'm trying to find another uh, another social media outlet of choice. I'm currently on Instagram. Uh, that is J-I-N-X 740-941. Uh, sorry for all the numbers. Uh, and you can find my writing on Bloody Disgusting. I have a few columns there. Otherwise, uh, you know, I wish you could still find me on Twitter, but uh, I am probably not there can i can i convince you to stay can i can i just like like the I don't, tomato I, score can i convince you to stay on twitter it's this weird rock and a hard place sort of thing where i've already said i'm going so if i don't leave i feel like a coward but at the same time now i feel like enough people have said like you know we shouldn't be run off of here let's stay and fight the power you know and i don't I don't know how we're going to do that tweeting, but you know, okay, maybe I'm, I'm willing to buy into the premise, but you know, now I feel like a coward if I do leave. So I'm, uh, it's very damned if I do damned if I don't. So uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll pull a two face and flip a coin and see where it lands. I'll, uh, I'll record it for posterity and for Twitter. Maybe that'll be my last tweet ever. Maybe it'll be one of many, 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 many more. We'll have to see. Well, there you go. Leave us all in suspense then. So, okay. Well, um, Hopefully you're still around when I tag you for this episode uh, on Twitter. <laughs> but yes, when is it? Uh, when is it going up? It should be just a couple days from when we're recording this, so it should okay, be very cool. fresh, hot off the presses for people. Uh, so sweet, um, I can't wait. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, yes. Thank you again, uh, and I'll for all our stuff. I'll plug that real quick. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I have still plan to be there. Uh, Maplet eighty seven. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Film Feast Pod. Um, you can follow me and the podcast on Instagram at uh, Film Feast, all one word. And I never forget about the email address, but maybe I should if people are leaving Twitter and you still want to reach out to me about any you know show topics, whatever. It's just thefilmfeast at gmail.com. Um, I never give that email out, but I would say I was like, I should probably look in to make sure that's still active, but it is. So yeah, the Film Feast at Gmail. If you don't have Twitter, just email the show. It's, I mean, I appreciate it. So um, reach out. I'm here. Um, but yeah, thank you again. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, and we will see y'all next time. Bye, everybody.